Welcome to episode four of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangrass. I'm just going to keep saying that because I hate how it sounds. My name's Kevin Goldstein. In the revolving co-host chair this week, our first Fangrass person appearance and joining us from his uh, luxurious accommodations in Tempe, Arizona, it's the king of the prospects, Eric Longenhagen. Eric, how are you? I'm pretty well. I- Am I the first person who, before you you started recording, was like, "Hey, remember to be loose, bud"? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, this is this is it's a, it's a casual thing, and sometimes people get tight. And what can you say? But I be guess loose. Yeah. be loose, Eric. Eric, be loose. I'll just tell you on air. Be be loose. I wasn't sure if that was a me thing or no, if that's a no, no. Thing. It's you a tell I'm so thing. loose, right? That I'm like, are you the only one that I've? <laughs> See, this is why you say it, because you're already uptight about the fact that I told you to be loose. Because I'm on coffee number three. I don't know if you've heard the show. We're loose here. I've heard the show, yeah. Okay. yeah. There's no requirement to listen. I don't, I don't know why to... I don't know why anyone does, to be honest with you. I've done a couple podcasts for some of the team-specific blogs over the last few days, and it is like, tell us what your thoughts are on this player. And it's like, all right. Uh, and so, yeah, it'll be – I hope. hopefully I get on the conversational – train tracks here with you uh yes. i don't think that'll be a problem it's a conversational show we're gonna talk about some baseball stuff uh our special guest coming up later uh is is Lindsay adler the great yankees beat writer over the at the athletics she's going to talk about what's going on in yankees camp as well as kind of her decision to to head over to to tampa for a little bit and um Certainly have been some soap opera aspects between the Domingo Herman situation and, and Aaron Boone getting a pacemaker and stuff like that. And she's also smart and clever. So we look forward to that. Um, we'll take some viewer mail. We'll talk about a movie or music or something. We'll just yammer. Um, the first story I want to talk about was just the fact that uh, today it, we're recording on Thursday, March 11th. It'll be out likely Friday morning. Uh, but on Monday, March 8th, uh, Major League Baseball sent a memorandum out to all teams uh, outlining the 2021 professional scouting policies. Um, quick, funny story. So Eric got his hands on this memo, um, maybe before anybody else. And we thought we'd write about it and maybe break a little story. And we each wrote about three sentences. And then uh, Joel Sherman and Jason Stark just tweeted it out. They just tweeted it out. <laughs> and um, then we went, ah, screw this. Let's go back to working. And so... Um, you know, there's a couple, there's there's some things to talk about. It Things are going to be a little different this year. Um, you know, all, all obviously pandemic-related news and things like that. But, um, you know, last year, uh, it just never happened. Um, you know, scouts, the, the, the scouting situation was simply never allowed at all during Major League games. Um, and the alt sites themselves were closed off to scouts. The first time scouts could get out was during instructs. 
um, and during instructs, they kind of had this opt-in rule where you weren't allowed to have scouts out at other ballparks unless you allowed scouts into your park. As far as I know, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you know more. As far as I know, the Twins were the only team to not allow scouts at their alt site, and their, or rather their instructs, and therefore they couldn't scout instructs. Do you know of any other teams that, that kind of went opted out? Obviously, there were teams that didn't have instructs at all, like the Cardinals, but were there any other teams that you know of that had instructs but didn't have scouting? No, I think it. I think that was limited to the Twins, and then I know for me personally that like the Mariners did not want me to go into their place. So I think that scouts were allowed in there, and I did see a, a Mariner scout at some other games. Um, so I would assume that that means that they opted in and allowed scouts. But I know I wasn't allowed on the Mariners' backfield. They just simply they just they just said no. I just did the typically I'm the in this situation. Look, I trust myself. And my ability to avoid COVID outdoors at on a backfield during instructs, right? Like, it's not hard. It's not like it's a lot of fans. So my approach is typically to shoot first and ask questions later. And so I yes. just show up places. It's always easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. But I, I did the inverse of that for whatever reason with the Mariners. I was on the Padres side one day where I, you know, not only did I just walk into the Padres backfield but i parked in like the manager space <laughs> right where they share where they share a spot with they share a, a complex with with the, the mariners. mariners yeah yeah and so i was over there and someone i think it was probably bill mitchell was like hey you know who's going to throw over there is george kirby or whoever and then i texted someone with the mariners like hey can i sneak over there and they're just like no don't do that um which i respected but again i should have just gone over you parked in the manager space though no, I didn't. But you can. They have the yes. Padres have their own uh, gated lot for the staff. Yes, and it is very inconsistent whether or not there's an attendant at that gate to stop you from going into that lot. Mm -hmm. And there, most of the spaces in that lot are totally unmarked, and that is where I park. But there is like a a space for the diff the various high level individuals in the organization have a reserved space somewhere. And during instructs. Most of them are unoccupied because nobody else is there other than people in the in the dev staff. So there is um, there's a similar lot for Rangers and Royals people in Surprise, um, and on the Rangers side of thing, there's a lot that has like you know mark space for for most of the officials in the front office people. And if I ever go to like an Arizona Fall League game there or, or interesting that I, there's a certain Rangers official who I'm a friend with, and I always park in his spot and then send him a text message of a photo of me parking in his spot. Do you have the gate code? Do you have the gate code to get into that lot? So uh, the last four times I've been in there, the gate is just open. I would flash my MLB executive patch and they would just let me right. in. Yeah. Yeah. There is a gate code for like extended and stuff after spring training is over and there's no, uh, there's just, there's much less of a security presence at any of the ballparks. And it's especially the security presence in the West Valley ballparks is typically more strict uh, in general during spring training. But once extended kicks off, it just sort of goes away. So like I have the goat, the, the gate code to just sort of get into the, the Rangers and Royals parking lot. And yeah, the George right. Brett has his own space and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a bizarre thing. And then the, the scouting, the, the funny thing about the memo is I was talking to a scout I was on the phone with a scout talking about Giants players because that's that was the prospect list that I was working on at the time. And this scout has them for spring training and had them for instructs looks last fall. And so I'm talking to him about their guys, and he's just like, oh, did you hear about the memo? And it's always funny when you get a hold of something like this 
because you're like, this is newsworthy. It makes sense to put out there. There are some relevant differences in the 2021 parameters uh, compared to the 2020s, as you said. Um, now we're going to have the ability for scouts will be able to go to the alternate site. Scouts will be able to do in-person advance work uh, rather than on video at the the big league stadiums and, and teams have to make room for them. And so, yeah, there is this weird, you and I have, have explicitly said to one another just in the last couple of weeks as, as we've gotten to know each other's like professional cycles uh, that we don't want to do the news breaking stuff. It, it distracts from the other stuff that we're doing. It's sort of, you know, you're compromising and trafficking in this other type of information um, that, you know, there are debits and credits for it seems. And then yet when I came upon this, it was like there were 30 seconds between when it was sent to me by the scout and when I was like, hey, I got a hold of this email. Um, <laughs> what, is, what is from, from the history of you doing this, the time, the, the highest profile thing that you knew about before it happened, but wouldn't report or talk about, or maybe you funneled it to somebody else? Um, it's, it's funny thing. Like, I don't want to, yeah, you're right. I, I don't, I, you know, and I remember talking to both you and, and, and David Appleman before I came to Fangraphs, just like, I don't want to want to be in the news breaking world. I don't think I can be as good at it as some people. I think that's the primary thing. And the other thing, I just think the returns on it are ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I, I think, you know, guys like Pass and Rosenthal and, 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 you know, sometimes Heyman and Sherman, uh, are really good. They're going to generally get things first. And the other thing is just like, I don't know what the value is like, you know, I don't I think about like the biggest things that happened this off season. Uh, you know, I don't know the Darvish trade, the Tatis deal. Do you remember who broke them? I don't No. And so it just becomes like, I don't understand why I would want to do that. And I don't think I'd do it as good as those guys. So, so why waste your time? Just let them do it. Um, it and, is... and you're right. I don't want to spend hours and hours like texting the agents. And, and when this stuff breaks, it's always from agents. I don't want to spend all this time like texting with agents and going, what's going on and trying to, 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 I don't know, like slither my way into that world. It just doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> Uh, very specific verb used there, but, but yeah, it's, it's the type of thing that if you want to be really good at it, then you have to devote as much time to it mm -hmm. as the people who are really good at it. And I don't even think I devote as much time to what I do as it seems Ken Rosenthal devotes to what he does. I know the hours you've been keeping lately working on prospects list, and I now know that's not true. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> when I'm, at least when I'm around other people, like at winter meetings and stuff, and I see Rosenthal and, oh, his, yeah. you know, his jacket's off, his little suspenders are on and he's on his phone still at 10 p.m. When like I'm two gin gimlets, two overpriced gimlets in uh, at the hotel bar with people like that's what I'm like. Oh, yeah, that guy's I can't do that like that guy is. I, I guess what we're both saying, friend. what we're both saying is we we both would rather drink than break news. But the <laughs> and that's coming from people two guys who don't really drink, but um, speak for yourself. Well, all right. Well, you're off beer. <laughs> We're inebriated in our own ways, at least. That's true. I can say that's true. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, the 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 point you made about not remembering who broke any of this stuff, I think, is interesting. But still, in that moment, still in the really the Twittery online moment, uh, there is something about that that seems to create attention, and someone somewhere cares about that. Someone, yeah, for sure. Just from. Ken or whoever it is, even the little bits and bobs that uh, that you and I, the colonels, will come th through with, whether it's, you know, this Cuban is now eligible to sign or whatever, right? Uh, someone on Twitter sees that and goes, oh, this person broke news. Yeah, no, there's a currency to it, yeah. 
there's a, right. And I think that ultimately it creates a perverse incentive uh, that, you know, remember the Gavin Floyd Blue Jays thing? I know you do. <laughs> yes. Okay. So if Bob Nightingale does that, except it's Trevor Bauer and the Mets, and there's not really any repercussions for him, but the benefit, but there is benefit to be had in this space, right? This online space uh, for, for him to get it right. Then all he has is incentive to try to shoot from the hip and get it right. Right. And that's a problem. And that's something that, you know, I'm not a member of the BBWAA. I don't plan on becoming one after, I mean, now, I certainly can't now because people can Google who the Phoenix chapter head is if they want, but there has to be some sort of accountability for that, in my opinion. Um, and because it is going to be a problem and it's weird when it intersects with our job. It's pretty rare when it intersects with our job. It's like, Hey, you can't tweet that Kohei Arahara is going to be an ace. And then everybody else that you're comparing him to in your tweet is also a Joel Wolf client. <laughs> and now my people come to the site to read my stuff on Kohei Arahara and their expectations are warped. And then they think I'm an idiot because I, you know, I'm underselling in their mind Kohei Arahara. Well, I'm just trying to present an objective view of his talent, not one that's been fed to me by his agent, right? Uh, and that's the other piece of this that I think is really interesting is I, uh, I know of a document that exists that is tracking uh, rumors that are tweeted, uh, news that is broken, and uh, the teams and the agents involved in the, like the writer who breaks the news and the agent of the player involved in the news basically is what's being tracked in the background. So I think at some point, maybe in the near future, there will be a very interesting, uh, there will be some very interesting details of this revealed uh, if, you know, if people have enough time to put that together, but it's a lot of stuff to do. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating world we live in. What were we talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I was Googling Phoenix BBWA chapter head and yeah, it's you're, Bob. you're screwed. Um, yeah. so let's, let's get into this memo. Um, uh, the first portion uh, is the major league championship season, and the the limit is one scout per club. I don't think that's going to have any sort of um, effect on teams who are evaluating players. I think it's rare to see multiple scouts from a club evaluating players. I do think once you get into September and teams start advancing in person, um, you know, I remember advancing the one time I ever did advance in person. I went to Milwaukee for the Dodgers Brewers playoff series and the Red Sox had six people next to me, um, six. And so I do think it's going to affect the advanced world significantly. But in terms of player evaluation, I don't think it is. But I, I, I wonder if that'll maintain itself. And then, you know, obviously I, things are going seemingly pretty OK with the with the all the vaccinations and maybe things change by September, but I think that's going to have an effect on advance early on, even where sometimes yeah, I, mean, I, I often sat in the scout seats at Astros games and, and there were frequently teams that had two advanced guys in the stands. Yeah. When, when I go to try to do like a, a D back series every month, if I can just to sort of calibrate and also to, it's just awesome being up close to those dudes and, and watching how talented big leaguers actually are. And yeah, it, it typically is like, you know, there's Ruben Amaro advancing for the Mets and it's just one guy. And then you will have your odd area or pro scout who's in there as not just a courtesy, but to, because that person deserves to have an understanding of what the big league talent level is too. Like it's an important part of their job. For sure. And definitely, 
talking with a lot of the pro scouts over the course of last summer, some of them, a lot of their time was devoted to doing advanced work on video. Right. And it's interesting now to see that the scouts are going to be allowed back into the stadium, which means that they won't have to do as much advanced work on video, which I think impacts the incentive of some of the contending teams to then opt in to whatever alternate site video sharing agreement they might be able to this year. I think that arguably the the fact that the Padres opted out of video sharing last year right. while the Phillies alt-site activity was broadcast in such a public way that I was able to access a catalog of it uh, was probably not good for the Phillies from an advanced perspective, especially at a time in 2021 uh, when a lot of the relievers, are, I think, are going to be back and forth from the alternate site mm-hmm. uh, and the big league club. So to be to be sort of scouring the alternate site video is also, I think, a, a, a well of info for the advanced work because you can see, all right, whose day was it to, to throw with some length at the alt site? You know, who can we expect? You can basically advance guys at the alt site that you can't at the big league level. So um, I think that that might change. Uh, whether I think some of the teams maybe regret opting into the alt-site video sharing last year, especially the contending teams. Uh, and now that you can do advanced work in person, it makes that that incentive sort of goes away and has changed in a way. Um, but yeah, I, when I'm going to the big league games, I'm almost never there until until I saw the Bauer outing at Arizona late a couple of years ago where he had kind of a rocky year. And then the last few weeks of the year, he was absolutely unbelievable. His first start of that run was in Arizona. I was there for it. And it's on the list of, you know, the best stuff I've ever seen in person was in that start. You know, him, Strasburg, Cole. Mm. Or, like, those are the three where I saw Garrett Cole in the fall league after he signed. It was his pro debut. I saw Strasburg with double A Harrisburg. And, like, you could hear the ball sizzling oh, yeah. through the air. Um, and, yeah, Bauer in that outing was as good as those guys. And that is also when his spin rate mysteriously exploded. Um, and so like, I've got high speed, close up high speed video of the baseball leaving his hand, uh, from that start. And so, yeah, like it's, um, to be in person and be able to acquire stuff like that. I don't know what the, 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 the value of it is explicitly, but it would seem to be pretty high for sure. And, 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 um, on the minor league side, it's the same rule one per club limit. Um, I've, I can maybe count on one hand the number of times I've seen multiple scouts from a team at a minor league game. Yeah. Um, uh, that does not include Arizona Fall League, where I can think of teams that have two or three guys there. I think at times just because the guy lived in Arizona and went into the game with his scout buddy who was assigned to it. And um, and then the, you know, the interesting thing that, that kind of struck my eye was like a later piece on the minor league piece, side, which is not just the one per club limit, but just that... Um, Early access is at each minor league club's discretion, and and often when you go to a minor league game or even a college game, as you know, um, sometimes you're going to get more out of BP and hopefully if they take an infield uh, than the game itself. You know, if you if you can really really bearing down on a guy or two, you can you can sit there and watch, you know, four rounds and thirty something swings as opposed to a game where you might get three, um, and you can also watch him take you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 ground balls as opposed to hoping something gets hit to them. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how teams handle that and, and, and allow for that kind of early access. Yep, I agree. Um, and then I would think if they don't, then that will be reciprocated 
by the other teams. This is this is also pretty typical. There are, are all sorts of access, sort of unlegislated uh, points of access, times of access, especially here on the backfields. Right. That most teams just allow scouts in as a courtesy. And that if, if again, the West Valley, you know, you get a security guard who's working at the park, and if a scout comes in, but they're not aware, you know, it's too early or whatever it is, The sometimes the security guard is like, hey, no, you got to wait. And there have been times in the past, examples where the team has then contacted the, the other club and said, hey, our scout wasn't allowed into your facility at the desired time to see live BP or someone throw in an early morning bullpen. Mm-hmm. There was a time when like Jesus Lazardo and AJ Puck and those guys were all rehabbing. Dalton Jeffries, James Caprellian were like all rehabbing simultaneously. And they were throwing in the morning at like 10 a.m. way before... Right. Any actual activity was going on. And so if a scout tries to wander onto the facility to see that at that time, it might raise alarms to just some security personnel who's just trying to do their job. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, the, yeah, there are examples where teams have had to call the other and be like, hey, you know, just so you know, if this continues, then your scouts will similarly be disallowed from the early work going on at our complex or whatever it is. And so some of that stuff happens in the background. Uh, and it would seem that, yeah, this provides another opportunity for stuff like that to occur. Um, the biggest change in the memo uh, concerns minor league spring training, which which starts uh, next month, as well as the alternate sites, which just got announced last week. And unlike last year, uh, clubs may scout in person at minor league spring training and alternate training sites. Um, this time they are matching the, the instructs opt-in rule. So if a club chooses not to make its I'll just read straight from the memo. If a club chooses not to make its facilities avail accessible to other clubs for scouting purposes, that club may not scout the facilities of other clubs. Um, and so, uh, and, and it's also, it applies to, it's a separate opt-in, if you will, for both minor league spring training and all training sites. You could opt in for minor league spring training and opt out for alternate training sites and, and vice versa. Um, and it is by, uh, eight days from now, teams need to, uh, let MLB know what their policy is going to be, whether they're opting in, in terms of minor league spring training and alt sites, as well as letting people know what their process is for, um, uh, for getting admission in the check-in process health wise and all that kind of stuff. And, and this is, you know, this is a little different. So teams are going to be able to go to the alt sites. A lot of teams already announced where their alt sites are going to be. There's a couple interesting ones there, especially the Cardinals. Um, but you know they're they're trying their best to keep their alt sites as close as possible uh, to the big league team. They're going to be even a little closer than they were last year. Um, and then the minor league spring training is going to be for teams. You know it's going to be obviously at Florida and Arizona complexes. Um, do you want to talk about the rumor out there for a second? Yeah. So there's a. It's a rumor. We got to be clear. This is right. like a rumor. None of this is set in stone. It's just something that that uh, that Eric and I have both heard some whispers about. Yeah. Not. Everybody who I've spoken to, and mostly we've been in touch with high-level executives, I think. Um, but not everybody knows this to be true or has even heard this rumor. But because there's going to be a, a lag between big league spring training and minor league spring training, and yet there are gonna be, there's going to be a layer of player that was invited to big league spring training but will not be at the alternate site or in the big leagues – Teams want a place for those guys to kind of stay hot and keep playing. And uh, so there's going to be potentially 
some four-week co-op developmental quote-unquote league here in Arizona so that the guys who aren't going to the alternate site, who aren't going to uh, the major leagues, but want to stay, continue get continuous reps between the end of big league spring training and the start of minor league spring training will all be playing against one another. So this likely will be like a wonderful place to see a lot of prospects because a lot of the younger prospects especially meet that definition. If Brian Rocchio is playing in a big league game last week, uh, but he's not going to be at the alternate site in all likelihood because why would Cleveland want a teenage shortstop at their alternate site? Uh, they need depth there. Like that guy's going to have to play in a co-op league or something like this or otherwise do nothing or just see like live BP type pitching for right. four weeks. So yeah, this is the rumor that there's going to be this four week ish co-op thing that is being driven by one of the GMs in Arizona. I don't think that there, it just sounds like an Arizona thing, not a Florida thing, obviously, because yeah, well, I've only heard Arizona and I've also, yeah. And obviously Arizona is way easier to do this. in, like you said, cause everything's close together, but I've only heard like, there's a, there's a, a proposal and a discussion has been had and, and like nothing's approved, nothing's set in stone. This might not happen. I probably, probably, probably won't happen, but it's, it's something that's being discussed is, is this kind of mini early prospect league. Um, that's interesting. It's something to keep an eye on. And it's funny. And it speaks to the eight day window that you referenced in the memo and the proposed, the only person who threw a start date out for this co-op league at me mentioned late March, like March 20 something. Um, and so this sort of speaks to the general fly by the seat of our pants nature that the last 12 months of, of baseball legislation has, uh, like been subject to, it has been a lot of last minute, this and that stuff doesn't always have, there's not always an answer to really relevant questions, uh, sometimes until processes are already ongoing. Um, and like, I have, I have a lot of sympathy for people who have to decide this stuff because there's no way to anticipate literally all of the little nooks and crannies that become complicated by the decision-making in this regard. But yeah, we are at a point where, hey, we're a week and a half out from the proposed timeline for the start of this type of co-op, according to one person's understanding of this. This is a person in a a high-level player dev position with the team here in Arizona. Um, So yeah, it is a lot of, uh, like, they're just sort of flying by the seat of their pants with some of this stuff. And I don't know that I get it. I get why it's really difficult um, to try to put all this stuff together, but this is probably a problem people could have anticipated. I, I don't think that the solution at, t- at the time was just to be like, Oh, teams will figure it out. You know, that, that seems to be the default answer to a lot of some of the, the weird developmental questions that come as a result of. And it's uh, the answer the to a lot protocols. of, it's the answer to a lot of things, you know, major league baseball, as far as like team individual COVID protocols in terms of how they dealt with the media that the, the major league baseball did not set a policy. They said it's up to the teams. Um, and they are pushing a lot of these kind of decisions onto teams, obviously. Um, but speaking by about flying by the seat of their pants one of the 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 bigger stories occurred yesterday which is wednesday for you and i right now at this point in time when the texas rangers announced that they're going to fill their stadium to capacity on opening day for reasons beyond me um it's it's just so dumb and like i don't know why we have covid protocols i don't know why we have any of this if we're going to fill a stadium it just seems like um 
raw late stage capitalism at its worst and and you know they had a new stadium last year and couldn't really take any advantage of it and obviously it would have been a great revenue generator for them uh, people would have been loved to have gone to the new stadium despite the fact that the rangers are you know currently in a downswing um and they need to fill i just feel like there was you know a spreadsheet and a meeting and business ops and ownership and they realized that with um, Texas doing what Texas is doing in terms of COVID and kind of lifting all restrictions, they could do it. And they said, yeah, let's do it and make some money. Um, the, I, they've gotten obviously a lot of negative response to this. Um, I wondered for a while if the Astros were, were planning on doing the same and maybe stopped. They said they're not going to do the same. If maybe they stopped after they saw the, the incredibly negative response to this and, um, they've had enough bad PR of late. And I, I, what was your initial reaction when you saw this? Because I was just kind of slack-jawed. My initial reaction to the itinerary that you sent me in the email that says WTF are the Rangers doing was, oh, we're going to talk about the clear seismic philosophical shifts evident in like their rebuild process. <laughs> <laughs> like what's, hey, how come they're giving like 800K to Thomas Segisi? Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, like, look, my perspective on this, I mean, that tells you how close to the painting I'm standing, but um, <laughs> my perspective on the the stadium news is I'm relatively unsurprised. Uh, I was surprised by any team going 100%. And the, and the fact that know. it's just for a day tells you that they know it's not a good idea. If they really thought it was a good idea, they'd say, fuck it, we're doing 100% every day. I've thought about... There's, we've all thought about some version of this question every day for the last year, which is why is it some of us, our response to this is to behave one way while others' response is to behave in the opposite. And so, you know, ultimately it just drills down my thought over and over again. The core of this is some of us think that when you die, you, you, there's this never-ending paradise. And those people tend to be more cavalier with a lot of people's lives. Uh, and then those of us who just think, hey, you die, and then that's it. Your consciousness ceases to exist. And so that's just ultimately what I think the root of all of this is, is, uh, you, you know, people want, or maybe people are justifying it to themselves in that way, unconsciously or after the fact. Maybe really people just want to live lav- lavish, opulent lives. Uh, and so they're willing to dissociate themselves from... Including sitting in the bleachers for a Rangers game? It doesn't include that, but it, it's... People get told... People who benefit from that are the ones disseminating, you know, misinformation or calling you a pussy for wearing a mask. Like, there's definitely something to all these college baseball games that we've watched, uh, uh, in, especially in the Southeast. Uh, the compliance with the with the mask stuff has been poor. And even I was at a, a college game earlier this year where it was so bad that I just had to go. It was distracting, right? And I was at a high school game early this year, too, when it was a, a high-end prep school from California. It probably costs five figures for your kid to go there every year. And so I would think that the people, and they're probably getting a good education there. But then why are all the parents morons? Because is the school in Orange County? Yeah. Here's your answer. So, but but there's something about that that transcends intelligence, right? There's something about it that that transcends what you know about, like, there are smart people who are still behaving this way. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, it is, like, hard to be like, hey, 
what's what what is the thing that is at, at the root of all this? But there is something I think to the the people who are at baseball games, especially spring training games and especially college baseball games that I've been to at in person for the last couple of months. Uh, it's mostly dudes, and there is something about the dynamic, the social dynamic of it being mostly dudes that I do think snowballs into less mask compliance than if the the gender ratio were more even because it is just mostly the women at the games are the ones more likely to be wearing a mask. Uh, when I was at Mackenzie Gore's start last Thursday, I took count of everybody sitting in front of the auxiliary press box. I was outside at a big picnic table up on like a platform in the Rangers' second-level concourse. So there was nobody within even 20 feet of me, but I could look down into the second level and count all of the people. And literally the mass compliance at the game was 10%. Jesus. And it's, and to a person, the only ones actually wearing the mask were women. And so there's something about that that's going on too. And I well, feel that. I think it's a uniquely, it's not uniquely American. You find this in, in all, in, yeah. in, in all countries, but there is obviously, and, and we've all seen it, just that weird, it's tough guy syndrome and and i remember seeing a, a person much smarter than me give a give a, a talk about this off of a, a thing he wrote and just how there was a weird thing that happened and then he pointed at the 70s um is when the was when the turn happened and people went from respect me and it transferred from respect me to fear me as something that you wanted to have happen and it's just this very strange like it, 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 you see it all the time. It's, it's like, I want to be seen as tough and strong. And part of that is defiance. And I think that's true. And also that's an instinct that I have that, especially during the early onset of the pandemic. And look, I was frustrated that we were initially told, yeah, don't worry. Don't wear masks yet. Like, don't worry about wearing a mask right now. And I understand why they did it, but we, we were still lied to in a way that bothered me. Yeah. But I had to fight my own machismo with other stuff at the onset of this. Like, I, don't, I still don't like wearing a mask. Like, I want to feel normal and free. I don't like the way the backs of my ears feel at the end of a day when I've had my mask on for five hours. Like, that sucks. So, but also, I had to override that feeling and definitely that weird social stigma about feeling weak or looking weak uh, with guilt, basically. Like, that just overrode the idea that I might get somebody else sick or kill somebody else's grandparents or whatever ultimately won out. Like, I had to yeah. – that, that part of me had to override this other feeling that I did have and can empathize with at least – uh, that you know you don't want to you don't want to do this. Nobody wants to do this, and you just have to you have, just have to let your kindness for other people, and you have to let in this understanding that hey, this is real, and you might actually kill somebody else. You know, even if the rate of it is whatever you think it is, and you think it's smaller than the re the reaction is, it's still you just don't want to hurt anybody else, dude. Like you really don't, and so. Um, so yeah, it has been bizarre to, to watch and I and open my eyes a little bit. You know who Robert Sapolsky is? I know the name. Who is that? So he's like a neuroendocrinologist and a person who No, I don't uh, know this person then. Yeah, so he's a professor at Stanford. He's written a bunch of books about human social behavior. He studied uh the same 
few troops of baboons in Africa every year for like the last several decades. And he's another one of these people who's definitely way smarter than you and I. And he, people can audit an entire semester of his uh, human behavioral psychology course at Stanford. It's on YouTube and it's fantastic and people should do that. Uh, but he has a story about the troop of his baboons raiding a dumpster. There's a dumpster outside of a hotel in, you know, wherever he is in Africa and they throw food in there when it's expiring and the baboon troop, when they would have garbage day, would know to go to the dumpster and raid the dumpster for scraps of food. And always the ones who were, were more successful at fighting for that food were the more aggressive, angrier bab male baboons in the troop. And then one day into the, into the dumpster is put infected meat, meat that, that caused, like it had, it was tubercular meat. It had, there was tuberculosis throughout this infected meat that was thrown away into the dumpster. And so all of the aggressive baboons died. And then the social dynamics of that group over the period of the next many years changed in such a way that was long-term uh, beneficial to that group of baboons because all of the hyper-aggressive males who were willing to, to be violent for that food died as a result of catching tuberculosis <laughs> from, from the meat. Um, and so I thought that's, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting story. I just think that socially we're just part of this big, it's just a giant, uh, intricate system of stuff of all like our social dynamics and external stimulus from the world that we've made ourselves to live in has an impact on all of, of the way, you know, society develops. And there are some parallels with that story and, and, and maybe what has occurred over the last year. At least so, I tell so what you're, what you're saying is that the Rangers opening day game is similar <laughs> to a dumpster filled with diseased meat. Well, the people going to the restaurants in the states that are now open 100% probably haven't aren't the people who have been considerate <laughs> in the during first the place. course of the yeah the past year, right? Yeah. So where's Arizona yeah. right now? Can you eat in restaurants? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You is, can, is it a hundred percent capacity? I think we're at fifty percent here in Illinois, and it was just—they really just opened up a couple of months ago. This is part of my strategy for my own sanity for the last several months has been to just—I don't care. I'm not following any of the, the statistics or our protocols. I'm just laser focused on doing the same stuff I've done the whole time until mm -hmm. I have two shots in my arm. Right, and no, then we, hell yeah, I'm no going to go see Godzilla versus Kong in theaters, like. The second I've got, I'm two weeks out of my second show. It's going to be on HBO Max and Dolby, know, and Dolby Vision with Dolby Atmos Sound. You're fine. No, man. I, I, I want to be there. I want to no, be. There's no being there. I want to I, I want to feel the lights come down. I want to watch a shitty preview of a thing that I'll judge in my head. Uh, like, you know, be like, oh, who would want to go see this? You know, whatever. How many how many Medea movies are there going to be or whatever? Uh, but, um, but yeah, I want to feel that experience again uh so so badly so but yeah arizona there are a couple places within walking distance of my house and one of them is a sports bar called the porch that has gone from a place where before the pandemic i'd go at like 11 a.m on a friday they have a bunch of tvs i'd ask them to put the college baseball games on and i'd sit and i'd write and i'd sip on some grapefruit juice and it would be a lovely afternoon of work and now all the asu kids who don't give a fuck are there all the time. So now there are lots of, you know, like it's a lot of horny young kids 
And so when I go there now, I feel way, <laughs> way, way out of place. And, and they are, it is packed to the gills inside. Right. Um, and so I do think that, yes, there are mask mandates at, at, at some of these places, the cities. Uh, when you see the graphic on TV where it's like states that don't have a mask mandate, Arizona is in one of them because our governor would not put a, a mask mandate on the entire state at once. And instead, he passed the buck to the mayors. And so at a city level, they're able to decide. Yeah. And most of the cities have decided, yeah, you got to wear a mask. So in effect, we have a statewide mask mandate here. Uh, but we don't have one that is dictated at the state level. So like some of that stuff is misleading too. But yeah, it's people... Also, I know people who have had it and people who are vaccinated at this point, And I think that they almost have an obligation to go be in society and, and spend money. It just creates another weird dynamic where it's like I'm at a game and an agent stands next to me and he's got no mask on. And he's like, oh, don't worry. I was vac vaccinated and I want to trust him. But I also don't want to give people that out to just say that they were. Right. You know, because at that point, then it's like if I forget him, if I forget a mask, but want to go get a bagel sandwich at you know this other place near my house i don't want to even be tempted to walk in there and just be like ah come on i was vaccinated right and i don't want people in general to be tempted to do that just for the sake of convenience which i think is a, a real driver of our behavior too <laughs> right um so yeah i think the the scary parts of the rangers thing are like um when you're screaming and yelling because willie calhoun homered that seems bad like it's one thing to be a scout at a game and everyone just be quiet and watching it in this library-like work setting, which I prefer. Mm -hmm. And it's a totally different thing to subject your scouts to a big league game in which everyone around them is is yelling. Can you imagine one of those 11 a.m. start minor league games that have all like the camp day, all the summer camp kids are there and they're just screaming their heads off? Like that that seems like a recipe for disaster with uh, with COVID and stuff. But yeah, it's it's someone somewhere knows that they stand to make a lot of money uh, and then is just is justifying to themselves doing it somehow and greg abbott helped them yeah and 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 levi weaver has some really great stuff on this on this whole story um over yeah, he's fantastic at, i don't know him, but his stuff is great he's really good covers the rangers at the athletic and it's just weird that like the fact that the team's already taking some extra precautions for this game in terms of their players um you know, putting some some you know plexiglass barriers on top of dugouts and 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 uh, around the bullpens and things like that shows that they don't think this is safe. They're they're making extra. They're doing extra things. Um, yeah, and and it's just a strange story. And I wonder. I don't know. I I don't think there's a hundred percent chance they actually do this because um, the kickback has been pretty hard. Um, I would bet they probably do, uh, but I, I, it would be. It would be it would be it would not be a giant surprise if they if they scaled this back a little bit. Um, so let's move on. You, you and I have have begun to write. Uh, it usually shows up on Fangraphs on Tuesday. We use Monday to write it. Um, kind of notes from the weekend. You and I are both spending uh, our weekends and a lot of time uh, watching. Baseball players, uh, not just spring training, but also a lot of college players and, and, and a little bit of high school when you can. Um, we also have been you know, watching a lot of video on these guys and, and talking to people who are out there at games watching these guys and starting to uh, wrap our heads around the draft, which is now um, not in three months, but in four months with it being moved to July this year. Uh, draft feels weird, right? Like I, I feel like um, you, know, you can go look at our board right now at Fangraphs and, and you know, with the top. Uh, I think for this year we have a hundred prospects. 
I feel like the 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 delta, the difference between the board when the season started and what the board will look like on July 1st will probably be the largest in recent memory. Yes, that is totally true. There are already guys on there who, uh, just because, yeah, there is so much going on, so much information to collect in real time right now that uh, the transmission of that information onto the site, onto the board, uh, there's a lag. Uh, and so, yeah, typically, ideally, we're updating that in real time as we are learning about these guys, but the fact is that the foundation of knowledge, especially on the college junior hitters, is so thin uh, and almost just being built before our very eyes that, mm-hmm. yeah, th- there are a bunch of guys. I sent you a a minor league, or not a minor league, a college stat leaderboard that I kind of cobbled together and ran some you know metrics myself, just like the strikeout weight rate and walk rate and ISO and stuff that is in that spreadsheet I sent you. That doesn't exist any, anywhere. Like that's just my crude spreadsheet work. Um, and so understanding whether or not Wes Clark is for real or Luca Tresh is for real mm-hmm. uh, or Nathan Hickey is for real, like all that stuff is going on. These are all draft-eligible college hitters who, because the 2020 season was a month long, we don't have a foundation of sophomore performance by which to judge them. And because they're all at huge D1 programs, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, a lot of them didn't play as freshmen or Justice Thompson transferred from a junior college, right? So you have a whole bunch of these uh, dudes out there who by July are going to be stuffed. They're going to have worked their way into the first round uh, college picture, second round college picture. And we just, some of them, their names we barely know at this point. So yeah, there's going to be a huge, huge gap, I think, between that and the final product. I still feel fine about what, our eventual comfortability will be with these guys. I think that no, we just have to be ready for dramatic dramatic change. Right. And you know, you talked about Wes Clark, and I wrote about him for Tuesday. And this is a guy who has insane numbers right now. Um, I believe he's sitting around with a, an OPS just short of two thousand. Yep. Um, but you know, and I was able to. I got lucky and, and found a scout who's already run into him. And um, you know, and he's like, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> he's like, right. I, he's like, and, you know, it's, it's happening against Mercer and Samford and schools like that. And he's like, Let's, I, I want to kind of see what it looks like when he faces real pitching. Cause right now he's sitting there with, um, you know, eight home runs and, and 14 walks against 34 at bats. And, and it's just, it's, it's insane, but it's not going against really good players. And I just don't know. Um, you know, all he could say was, I think the approach is real. Um, and so we still have a long way to go with a lot of guys. There's already tons of pop-up guys. There's also a lot of guys who are maybe not, you know, who we thought might be the, some of the top players who are not living up to expectations. Um, you know, Adrian Del Castillo, the catcher at Miami is really scuffled. Uh, Alex Benellis at Louisville has been a, a nightmare. He's sitting like 120 right now. Um, and so there's going to be huge change. I think the pitchers have kind of been what we thought they'd be you know lighter's been really good rockers stuff's been really good Jaden hill shit the bed over the weekend but otherwise has been pretty interesting um you know time man's moving into that kind of elite top of the line arm with with some of his recent performances and and also the stuff he's shown uh but like we got a long way to go and i just feel like there's going to be tons of pop-up dudes where we're sitting back and going oh shit who's this and and trying to figure that out Yeah, and the the in-person component this year, especially at the junior colleges, as a result of all this talent overflow from a shortened 2020 draft, 
right, is going to make it so that there are some super duper hidden guys, some players who, in a typical in a typical year, especially as pervasive as the video and tech components of this process are now, it's pretty hard to hide a guy in the old school sense. But if there's ever going to be a year where that's possible again, to not tell someone like you or me or Keith or Kylie or Jim or whoever about that guy and really and really actually be hiding them, it's a year like this year. Uh, so, so yeah, and the decision to when, like when to actually move somebody is also, it's also hard to know when that's the right thing to do. I think that being skeptical of some of the, you know, Wes Clark's average exit velo in 2020, again, shortened season, was like 86 miles an hour, mm. right? And, and so if we're talking about some of the guys like this from recent years, Cody Hosey or Brent Rooker or whoever, these right, righty-hitting, uh, positionless power guys at these big schools who have these sudden short-term breakouts as opposed to the guys like Seth Beer who hit year after year after year, um, you know, like they've had huge raw power and this guy doesn't. Um, and so having a collecting some of that is going to be important, I think, too. Uh, and then some of it is like I've watched a lot of Miami, and I think Adrian Del Castillo looks fine. Like mm-hmm. I still think that he is going to be you know the first or second college catcher off of the board. Him or Henry Davis at Louisville, who's got more, way, way, way more raw power than Del Castillo, who is more like really advanced bat to ball skills catcher guy. Um, and so how teams line that up, I think will be interesting too. But, but yeah, the, the pieces of this that we still don't know is like, I haven't double checked on what high school baseball in California is going to be like here soon, you know, Mm -hmm. like some of the way different places handle COVID at the end here, hopefully, uh, is going to vary and that's going to make it harder or, or easier for some high school guys as their seasons start to get underway. Uh, to be seen and it is definitely a strange draft Um, and yeah the the pieces in the transfer portal there's a guy here's a guy who stood out to me over the weekend Uh, Rumfield I think it's TJ Rumfield at Virginia Tech he's big 6'5 220 pound lefty hitting first baseman he was at Texas Tech and just couldn't get any playing time took advantage of the weird transfer rules that the NCAA implemented as a, re- as a result of COVID in response to it, where you could transfer from D1 school to D1 school without having to sit out a year. And now he's plug and play at Virginia Tech and he's crushing and he just has like, he looks the part. He's a giant lefty hitting first baseman with natural lift, love the way his hitting posture lets the barrel traverse the hitting zone with lift, but without compromising comp- uh, contact to my eye. But there's just like no track record here. This guy went nuts against VCU over the weekend. And I don't really know how to, to factor that in. And so that these weird corner cases are just going to pop up all over college baseball. When did you, how much college ball did you watch while you were writing at BP? Was it, was it anything or was, were you just yeah, doing no, high level it. stuff? Yeah, I watched, I watched a ton. Yeah, sure. I, I you know, okay. I was really focused on maybe the top 100 guys, um, which is probably still the case. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, so I watched you know quite a bit, and like it's just weird names pop up. I mean, you know, it, it caught my eye just because the spreadsheet you sent, like a uh, you know Julian Bosnick at South Carolina, um, and you're like, who is this guy? And uh, he's he's pitched in three games so far for the Gamecocks. He's pitched ten innings. He has 21 strikeouts, and he hasn't allowed a hit. And 
the weird thing is I went, I, went, I went and looked said, who is this dude? And then um, last year, in his first year, he's a redshirt sophomore. And so last year, as a redshirt freshman, he pitched six and two-thirds innings. And you know what? He didn't allow a hit. So it was his college career now is have 16 and two-thirds innings, zero hits, 28 strikeouts, but also 16 walks. And it's just like, I, I just want to know what this is. I, I don't know what his stuff is. I couldn't tell you for the life of you what this guy's stuff is, right. but I'm going to find out now. My favorite, too, is the the hitters who haven't struck out yet. <laughs> uh, who were now a month into the season, and here I am, I'm trying to calculate strikeout and walk rates and then filter my sheet based on a, a minimum number of plate appearances, basically, to, so that I'm not getting guys who have come off the bench once. Uh, and still, over the course of a month, there are a handful of college hitters who have hit you know and have had 30 or more plate appearances who haven't struck out or like Hayden Dunhurst the catcher at Ole Miss and I'm sure you've watched a lot of Ole Miss uh, games so far this year because they have a talented team as they always do and Dunhurst is an underclass catcher who's starting for them he was a he was a big time prospect in high school I wouldn't have guessed he's only struck out one time. This is a catcher with all fields power and a plus arm who's only struck out one time. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't planning on going to, ooh, look at Rumfield's on this list too. He's only struck out twice. Uh, I think I'm falling in love with TJ Rumfield at Virginia Tech. But um, <laughs> but yeah, like there's a guy at, at Wichita State who's among the, the leaders in – in power production so far this year. I hadn't planned on going to down to Tucson to see Wichita State versus uh, U of A this weekend, but now I might to see this guy, Grant Kokus or whatever his name he's is. He's got a huge K rate, though. Yeah, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of strikeouts, but he's um, he's second in the country in dingers. Uh, so, like, if I'm if I'm going to go see a guy, it's, it's a good weekend to see this dude against Chase Silseth and TJ Nichols and a, and a pretty good U of A pitching staff. Like if there's ever a weekend to get in and, and evaluate this guy, it's probably this weekend. So yeah, we're, we're doing the fly by the seat of our pants thing too. It's definitely a different vibe than, than ever before for me in parts because, you know, I didn't see any of the high school showcase stuff last summer. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't want to fly to uh, whatever Birmingham or right. go to Oklahoma city or, you know, go to the East Lake complex or whatever in Georgia or North Carolina. Like, I didn't want to go to any of that stuff. So uh, I haven't seen a ton of Jordan Lawler. Like I saw a ton of Ed Howard, you know, I can't look at Jordan Lawler and then remember Ed Howard in my mind's eye, nice and fresh and go, Oh, I want Lawler. Clearly there should be some daylight between these two guys. And that means Lawler is a top five guy. Like I just don't have a visceral feeling like I typically would uh, in any other year. Right. Um, wow. We're almost to an hour. We're going to take a break. Take a break. Am I loose enough? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Just, I'm going to get another drink. Just loose. It's too early for that. Um, so we'll take a coffee. Okay. That's fine. How, do you drink a lot a day? Are you coffee? Yeah. No, I try to like, there was a point where I had to say, Hey, is this, am I, am I too jittery because of this? Is this actually (laughs) doing something to me? And I had, and yeah, I think at some point I was like, yeah, I I have to slow down how much of this I drink. Cause I would wake up I'd make a big pot of coffee and then, you know, Jill would go to take some of it to school and then whatever was left in the pot, I would just finish throughout the day and I just can't do that anymore. Right. Um, just take a break while Eric gets a, a more stable drink. 
Uh, we'll come back. We'll talk to Lindsay Adler of The Athletic about Yankees camp. And then after that, we'll uh, get into some emails and other stuff. But for now, enjoy some music from Nathan Burnett. Back to the podcast. Thanks as always to Nathan Renee for the music that you just heard. Joining us now is a very special guest. She used to write Deadspin. She's currently best known as the beat writer for the New York Yankees for The Athletic. Joining us from her luxurious accommodations in Brooklyn, New York, it's Lindsay Adler. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm good. I've, I do. I want to start with a, a question for you about you. Uh, spent the first couple weeks of spring training in Tampa with the Yankees? Yes, I did. In in our first episode, we had on uh, Pedro Mora, your compatriot mm-hmm. from the left coast who did not go uh, to spring training. Can you talk about your decision to go and, and, and kind of what it was like uh, to covering the team with all of the limitations uh, because of what's going on in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So I went down for the first two weeks. And then I came back um, for now for for two weeks for sort of the spring training doldrums. And then I will finish out uh, spring training down in Tampa. And really a big thing for me is just I really need to be in the environment of baseball to write about it. Um, I'm not even going to say write about it well, to write about it. And so that was what was... uh, really hard about last year. And that was what was really frustrating about the off season because, you know, in a normal off season, I would maybe find a feature story and get on a plane and go, I don't know. I I don't know where Jameson Tyone lives in the off season, but you know, maybe after they traded him, I would have gone to wherever he lives and sat down with him or something like that. Or the Yankees had so many players uh, playing winter ball this off season. Maybe. I could have pitched a story where I went to the Dominican Republic and I, you know, got to see some of that. Um, so it was just really hard to be disconnected from baseball. And truthfully, I, I needed the, I needed the routine. Uh, I needed out of my tiny studio apartment. And I was just really excited to see things like strikeouts and home runs again. And so I was sort of surprised, um, The thing that's been really surprising to me actually has been just how it's made me think about sort of how miserable last year was for everyone. (laughs) Like players were in a bad mood. We were all in a bad mood. Everyone was in a bad mood. And so now I get to, I get to Florida and nothing's really changed. You know, the Yankees split their, uh, they split spring training, their, their minor league 
facility is across the street from from the right. major league spring training facility. And so they stationed the pitchers over at player development and the hitters over at the major league facility. And so I roll in the first day. I should say that when baseball shut down on March 12th, I was at the player development facility. And the first place I go after I get on an airplane for the first time in 11 months was to the player development facility. And they had us, they have us sort of in this like, tent thing with tables where we can like kind of see what's going on and so it's like it's it's just not that different from what we did last year going into the press box um but it just feels better it feels different it's nice to see it's nice to see things like batting practice again and so I was actually really surprised because the access really hasn't changed the Yankees aren't coordinating one-on-ones we're not there's some teams that are doing you know, very distanced um, in-person one-on-ones with players and whatnot, but the Yankees have a really big beat. It's just sort of a tough thing. So there really isn't that much that has changed since last year, but it definitely feels like a huge difference from last year. I mean, you're not, for batting practice, where are you watching batting practice from? Um, so once once position players reported, then they opened uh, George Steinbrenner Field to us and so we have the press box, we have the auxiliary box, and then they said we could sit in the stands. So really before game started, I was just sitting um, like in the seats on the concourse behind mm-hmm. home plate. So like we're not allowed in the 100 section, but like, I don't know. I was like sitting in the Florida sun with my laptop in the stands watching Giancarlo Stanton like you know, hit 122 mile an hour scorchers and batting practice or whatever. And it was like, would I like to talk to some of these people in person? Absolutely. Will I take just being close enough to hear the sounds of, uh, you know, Garrett Cole's fastball or the ball coming off Gary Sanchez's bat? Yes, I will take that. That is great. So it's, um, I would say it's better vantage points from, what we had just in the press box last year, but it's like, it's, I mean, we're still pretty distanced. And and obviously you don't have clubhouse access. How has that kind of affected your ability to do your job? I miss it. I really miss it. Um, Big sigh. I really, like, <laughs> that's like, that's, that's the, I mean, the players would say it's the worst part of having to deal with us, but like, yeah, and that's when you get to actually like get to know people. You get to have conversations that are either sensitive or not about baseball. You get to have conversations one on one. And so really I feel I'm relieved. I'm glad that, you know, we got through most or about half of spring training last year with Clubhouse Access and that I have been around the team so much over the past few years because I found myself really drawing on a lot of that base of knowledge. Um, in writing stories, like I wrote about Clint Frazier a couple of weeks ago and I didn't talk to Clint one-on-one. I didn't, I don't think I even tried to, I don't think I even have his phone number. You know, I didn't, I didn't add anything that we hadn't already heard on zoom, but Mm -hmm. because of the, you know, accumulation of conversations that we've had either on the record, off the record, serious, not serious over the past few years, um, I felt I was still able to profile him based on the things he was saying now. And so 
obviously that well is only so deep. Um, it makes me really feel for the beat writers who either started on new teams or started the job new entirely, either last year or this year, because that that base of familiarity has just been really useful for me. And I would just love to be able to ask someone a question that doesn't need a soundbite answer and is not conducted over Zoom for the rest of the beat to hear. I, it could right. it could be something like, "What did you have for lunch?" I would just love an answer. Um, <laughs> but I will take this for now. I'll take it. And Yankees camps has had a couple, um, for lack of a better term, kind of off the field stories. Um, in the the first week you had uh, the return of Domingo Herman from a, a suspension for a domestic violence incident and um, some players being, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, I'll ask you this first. Like, were you surprised about how vocal some players were about it, in particular uh, Zach Britton and Luke Voigt? I was surprised when Zach was vocal because, just because of the broader baseball culture about mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah. You just, you just don't hear it, you know, like, you just don't. Um, was I surprised, you know, if, if someone had asked me, who I thought it might be. No, I I was not surprised that it was Zach. Um, Zach very genuinely cares about, um, I guess I would say women's equality. You know, it's a conversation he and I have had many times over the years. Um, He he understands it. He cares about these things. And I think the thing is he feels accountable for it. Like, I just don't know that Zach necessarily would have felt right about not being honest and just brushing it off. And that really, that really is just the big difference. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know if Luke would have said something like that either. I thought what Luke said was very fair. He said he's thin ice, he's on thin ice, but he's our teammate. And while, you know, we will wait to see what happens. We still want to be here in case he needs you know, people to turn to if he ever feels lost again, which I think is a really, really fair, generous and straightforward way to put it. And so, yeah, I was, I was a little bit surprised to hear someone say it, but I don't think Zach's perspective on it was a surprise to me in the least. Do you get a sense that both baseball as a sort of a specific subculture and like our broader culture and the kind of discourse we have, kind of the discourse that we've been forced to have for the last year because you can't go see anybody in person, is like how you get the sense of that the way that shifted has had an impact on what players are willing to talk about versus not. Like, do you think that beat writers might come back to a more or less open type of player when things return to normal? I don't know, because um, I think it's really risky for these guys, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a person who really wants them to be candid and honest with me, so I don't know if I should say that, but it, it, it is a big risk. It's you are, you know, someone like Zach or someone in any similar type of situation. Um, actually, a good one. John Carlos Stanton is pretty uncomfortable, you know, talking in front of groups. Um, he 
you know, likes to keep things very much to baseball in media sessions. And he really put himself out there with, with his teammates last year talking about Black Lives Matter. And he was pretty vulnerable with us as well. And, you know, I, I think we all understood what he was saying and he is very um, thoughtful, but you are putting your words out there to be interpreted, contextualized and written about by other people. Um, and then you are, then it is further out there for people to judge you by, you know, even, even Zach, while, you know, even Zach, there were people saying like, you know, just keep your mouth shut and pitch or whatever. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard and you don't want to be a distraction to your team. And I totally understand that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think the culture is changing in a lot of ways so that it's not so, um, I, I think guys are more comfortable being honest about a variety of struggles um, and a variety of, of things, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to be all of that different because I do still think there is a big social public risk to, to making yourself vulnerable for millions of people who don't know you. Um, can you about the other kind of off the field story happened recently, which was Aaron Boone getting a pacemaker installed. And I feel really dumb about this story because when it first came out, I just, maybe I just don't understand like how medical procedures and medical technology works these days or something. So I was like, Oh, that's, that, that's horrible. I hope he's okay. I wonder who will be their manager for the first part of the season. Mm-hmm. Like, cause yeah. it's, it's heart surgery, right? I'm like, they'll yeah. be out for a while. It's like, yeah, he'll be back this weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. What, a, what the hell? And I, is, is that, a, am I the idiot here? Or does that like seem like a really quick return from having a pacemaker installed? Uh, yeah, we all learned a lot that day. We all learned a lot over the course of that week. I mean, I missed my flight losing track of time. Um, wound up getting home that night, but it was a little bit, uh, chaotic, but yeah, you know, I, I think Aaron, so they first put out a statement, you know, saying he will take leave. There was a long statement from him about, you know, how he sort of knew that this would be something that he would have to consider in the future because of a, you know, genetic heart issue, I guess I would say, um, but still, yeah, like all I know about it is like this 47, now 48 year old man needs, you know, a pacemaker. He needs something going into his chest cavity, I guess. I'm not going to Google to see that that stuff makes me too squeamish. But then Brian <laughs> Cashman got on Zoom a couple of hours later and he was like, I was so freaked out. And then Aaron started walking us through it. And I sort of, you know, I was WebMDing it myself as you guys probably were. And wow, medical advancements are amazing. And ultimately, that's kind of my takeaway. Like Cashman said, Cashman later said that Boone FaceTimed him within, I think, like a couple hours of his procedure and that he just seemed so much more upbeat and energetic and bright than he had over the past couple months when he was feeling shortness of breath and symptoms like that. And yeah, it's like kind of amazing. Like I I actually, you know, I'm... I'm glad he's okay. Um, sure. You know, I, I, you know, I, I hope everything is, is good, but like, 
it was a really educational experience to see just how far science has taken us because yeah, Yankees manager returns to the dugout like three days after getting a pacemaker inserted. Uh, that's not what I would have expected going into spring training for sure. And so I, you know, obviously the Yankees, like you said, they have the largest beat um, and, and are obviously one of the most watched teams in spring training. Um, I don't know if this is right, but it feels like they have more games on than anyone else. Like you feel like you can watch most Yankees games if, if you're a spring training streamer type of person. Um, they seemingly, you know, if you go by Fangraph's projections, have the best team in the American League West. Like what is the... This is a very vague question, but like, what is the, what are the vibes? Like, what is the general vibe around the team right now? Um, you know, I assume they see themselves as a favorite with pressure on them, but this is not a perfect team by any stretch. And there's lots of questions about rotation spots. Mm -hmm. There is. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty hard for me to write about because one, it's, it's spring and everyone's always sunny and optimistic and they can tell you exactly what went wrong last year and what they've changed and whatnot but like I think there is a lot of reason for optimism like Gary Sanchez he had an awful season he was um you know he was he was in a really bad headspace where in 106 I mean Gary is a streaky player yeah. I I just think that's what his profile is going to be so in a 162 game season you know if you have a poor week you can you can deal with it and so I think the the pressure of the shortened season and knowing that one week in the 60 game season is so much more it, it just it's so much more real estate than in a than in a normal season that was hard on him so he's not going to be in that situation he talked things out with the Yankees and from what I've seen so far it's like night and day with his um with the timing on his swing like I don't know if he's changed anything mechanically or what it is, but like he has just been getting to baseballs that he was just complete, either completely missing on or popping up last year. So do I think that is different than last year? Yes. Do I necessarily know if that's representative of how he's going to perform this season? No, I don't know. It's the same thing with Jamison Tyone. Like he's had two UCL surgeries, but he says he feels but he says he felt he still felt arm pain after his first one, but now he feels good and he's changed his mechanics to, you know, make sure that he doesn't create the same damage again. And he feels good. And we have a very small, you know, uh, sample of data on how guys bounce back from a second Tommy John surgery. So how do I evaluate him? You, you know, like I, I think he has done the right things. It sounds like he is feeling great. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he, he's looked good to me, but can I really say like, you know, okay, he, he, he feels like he's settling into his new mechanics while every fan who's reading a story I write knows that he just came off of the second Tommy John surgery. So it's, I think there's a lot of, it is just such like a high upside team right now. And like, the thing that's really struck me is like, being a spring training, I'm sitting there, I'm watching Garrett Cole, Corey freaking Kluber, <laughs> uh, you know, like someone like Zach Britton, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, you know, like all of, like, I can't even name all of them. They have all of these great players and should be able to perform. And I just think the big thing is that Yankees fans are just so tired 
of the injuries. And as a writer, I am also really tired of the injuries. Um, it, it has become a very boring story to write. <laughs> it has blown up a lot of features that I've been working on. And so, but it's a really hard one because they changed their, you know, they changed their training staff. They brought in Eric Cressy. Guys like Stanton have been doing Cressy's program for a year, but what can you really say until you see the results? So I think they have a lot of reason. I think the players have a lot of, you know, legitimate reasons to feel very good about themselves, but there's just like this underlying, you know, okay, well, 85% of things need to go right then um, with this group. So then in terms of the rotation, who, if everyone's now taking like two turns through basically at this point, at least who's out of the gate throwing well, who, if you had to ballpark a couple favorites to claim a, a, a rotation spot at this point, who would they be? And then who else is sort of stretched out? This has sort of been beaten <laughs> to the ground too, but like, you know, you're going to need a lot of length out of your bullpen this year just because of everyone's workload skyrocketing. So, mm-hmm. you know, is there, do you have any inclination that they might approach pitching deployment in a different way this year to sort of counteract that and who might you know, be candidates for that out of the bullpen? Yeah, so I don't really have a sense of, you know, whether they'll go to six-man rotation at times or things like that. But it's not just that they have the standard guys coming off of a 60-game workload. They have Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone, who haven't pitched in two years. Um, So you're really limited. I mean, they have so many days off in the first month of the season that I think they can manage. But the way I would see it right now is Garrett Cole, Corey Kluber, Jamison Tyone, Jordan Montgomery. And then the fifth spot is really, I mean, it's really Davey Garcia or Domingo Herman. And Davey and Domingo have both looked good this year. Aaron Boone has been pretty clear that they're going to keep Davey stretched out. Like, you know, even with like an extra spot opening up in the bullpen with Zach Britton's injury, like they're not going to just have him throw a couple innings every few days. Um, And I think there's a lot of, you know, if all things were equal, you know, if, if, if they were to have sort of the same quality of spring training, you know, Domingo has one minor league option remaining option year remaining, Davey has two. Do you expect that you will have Davey kind of shuttling back and forth anyway? So do you have him at the alternate site to start the season? Uh, Just things of that nature. And so I'm not, you know, people keep asking me like, Davey or Domingo, Davey or Domingo. And I'm like, well, one, I haven't seen enough. And two, you know, unless there's like a huge difference in in what the Yankees think that either of them can contribute to their rotation early in the season, I would expect that there would be other roster management considerations there. And then, right. Yeah. Like if you have to have this many guys over the course of a season, then how your spring roster deploys might Mm -hmm. just be dictated by what allows you the most flexibility. Yeah. That makes sense. Then the thing that popped up now this week is Zach Britton's surgery. Mm Mm-hmm. So then that leaves the bullpen really without a dynamite second lefty. Like Chapman's role is his role. And then Justin Wilson is around. 
but hasn't been good for a little while. And then Tyler Lyons is the other experienced hmm. lefty NRI. Mm-hmm. So I was curious if when that news broke that Britain was going to need surgery, the sense you got from the org as to whether or not it might be a problem that they look to address externally um, or if there are internal candidates to either either be left-handed out of the bullpen or get lefties out out of the bullpen. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like it's – it sounds to me like the plan is internal. Um, I think it's pretty interesting Zach said that, like, if this had come up during the season, he probably would have rehabbed and played through it. But uh, in classic sort of Yankees fashion, they're billing him as the as the second-half big addition. Um, so, yeah, I, so Boone said yesterday or two days ago or whatever – that it'll sort of be like set up man by committee or by matchup. And so, you know, you've got Darren O'Day who can get the righties out. You Like you said, you've got Justin Wilson, Chad Green. And then so you can sort of like slide those guys back and sort of, you know, kind of bolster things in the sort of middle innings. And so Jonathan Loisaga, I think there's like a few different ways that they're thinking about using him. He could be, he threw three stellar innings today. He could be a single inning weapon. Um, I think his contributions could be pretty interesting, but really the big hype train right now is um, for Lucas Litke, who Mm. hasn't pitched in Major League Baseball since uh, 2015. He's just like coming in and striking everyone out. And he's wearing number 63 in spring training, which for whatever reason, the fact that like, Yankees fans are like losing their mind over a guy they had never heard of before two weeks ago who's wearing 63 is just like a, a perfect encapsulation of how um, enthusiastic this fan base is. So, yeah, I, I, I think they do have depth options. You know, they have someone like, you know, maybe not left-handed, but Adam Warren, they have Nestor Cortez. It's like they almost have so many guys – like that, um, who can, who I think can come in that while yes, losing Britain is a big blow. Um, they definitely have a number of different, uh, options that I guess I would say they could try out even. Um, you, and you talked about the Yankee fan base and, and the, obviously the <laughs> Yankees are, and I, if, if you're listening to this and you're a fan of another team, you're going to get a little upset here. I don't get it. The Yankees are the Marquis franchise in baseball, period. Yes. You know, this is, this is the biggest team. I think it's the biggest fan base that you know, they make the most money. This is, this is, this is, uh, you know, the, the people in people, not in the United States have heard of the New York Yankees, I yes. guess might be the best way to put it. This is, this is the franchise. Um, and there are, and it helps that they're always good. You know, they've, they've only missed the playoffs four times since 1995. At the same time, they have not been to the world series since 2009, I think. Um, obviously I think the fans feel that, you know, like you said, um, does the team, do you think the team feels pressure because of this? And, um, is that pressure simply kind of esoteric in the sense that whether they do or they don't, um, you know, they're still going to make their money. Yeah. I mean, Yankees fans will say that, um, Hal Steinbrenner doesn't care about winning, um, that all he cares about is money. I mean, it's the, the fans very much want, uh, the boss back, I would say. And his 
idea of spending whatever it takes, um, even though there are only so many spots on the roster. But I think what's really interesting is like, you know, the Yankees window opened early in 2017. Um, That was, you know, pretty exciting for them. They uh, have some resentment about uh, the 2017 ALCS. And then Mm -hmm. they've just had a, they've had really brutal manners of falling out of the postseason uh, in the time that I've been covering them since 2018. And I just, you know, seeing, seeing the clubhouse after the 2019 ALCS in Houston and just how devastated everyone was, it was like, I've never been in a, in an environment that was that like openly emotional. And I don't necessarily mean like everyone weeping, but it's like, like I could almost like feel the, I don't know, hormones, whatever we emit when we're there's, there's, very upset. There was, there was a weight to it. There was a very big weight to it. And that's sort of what they keep referencing. Um, you know, last year, I think it was a really tough thing because they were super motivated in spring training. You know, they were, they had been thinking about 2019. They had sort of put it behind them and they were really, really um, sort of unified. And then the pandemic hit. But that's really what they keep coming back to is like, we have been close. (laughs) We have been very unhappy with the way things have ended. And it's like close enough that we can get the sense of, you know, what reaching the World Series would feel like, but we just haven't done it. And I think that's really what's like, I don't want to say driving them crazy, because that makes it sound like they're going to psych themselves out. But like, it's real. And I would say Aaron Judge is a huge driver of it. Um, you know, Brett Gardner is the only guy still there from 2009. So he represents the continuity. And there's definitely a, a push for it. And so you have guys like Jay Bruce taking non-roster invites because they they just want to win. And, and that's a thing that I think maybe maybe Yankees fans should think more about is the fact that there are a lot of players who come to the Yankees because they're tired of not winning and they feel that this is their best opportunity to do so. And uh, do you feel like this is maybe a bigger story in the eighties and Ed Whitson days mm-hmm. stuff? Do you feel that there are players who um, for lack of a better term, can't handle playing for the Yankees? I don't know. I think from what I've seen in a few cases or a couple cases, maybe I think there are just some people who don't like the environment. I don't know if in terms of the intensity or in in terms of the intensity, in terms of, of how crowded the clubhouse is or, or in terms of like, like what are the things that, that you've seen players struggle to, to, to adjust to? Yeah. So I had a conversation about this with James Paxton at the end of, the 2019 regular season. And I was like, be honest with me, is it really that different? And he was like, whoa. Um, you know, he'd come from Seattle, pretty chill. Um, and, you know, it. I mean, before the pandemic, it sort of starts in the afternoon when for like a home game, for like a, for like a home Yankees Red Sox series, there will be 40 reporters who walk into the clubhouse Um, like I think our beat is like 12 people. And so even though I think the idea of like mean New York media or whatever is 
whatever. I, I don't think that's accurate. I think it's intense for the players because we're all competing against each other. And so we are all looking for angles that are different from one another. So we are asking them to analyze very granular things. Um, whereas if you're playing for a team where there are like three beat writers, well, you can, you can probably be a little bit more broad, but then so that's, I think, sort of where it starts. And then just the fan feedback is just so intense. And it's like, it's it's intense for me. It's intense for any of the guys who go on social media. It's intense at the ballpark. It's intense in the tri-state area. It is just a lot. They know who you are. And this is not something that I understood before covering the Yankees, because before covering the Yankees, I didn't really know many actual Yankees fans. Uh-huh. I only knew... I only knew the like, you know, wearing 5950 Yankees hats. And yeah, it's it's just really intense and the expectations are very high and that makes it really great for me as a writer because it means I can write about the 28th man on a 26 man roster and people will be like, "Oh, yes, this is great." You know, like I'm so excited to read this. They they just want to know everything. And so I just I just think there's a much slimmer margin of error for all of these guys. And in a lot of ways, I think it's just much harder for them to be themselves. And so when I think about like guys who have not succeeded or have just not seemed happy here, it's like I can understand it. It's just it's not for everyone, I don't think. And I don't think that's a weakness thing. I just think it's. And until you sort of step into the clubhouse or like step onto social media, having anything to do with the Yankees, like you don't understand just how like intense it is. And what are the avenues through which most of these guys are hearing this stuff thought and, and said about them? Like, what is it about? There's not something about New Yorkers that allows for ESP or anything like this. So like, what is it about? I, I suppose there's a deluge of it extra online, but they're you know not necessarily required to expose themselves to that. So how how is it that people are coming to be crushed by this wave of fan reaction? Yeah, I mean it's it's a number of things. Like there's a few guys who are pretty good at staying off social media, but like I, don't, I think more of them pay attention to it than they would like to, than they would admit. Yeah. You know, you hear things like podcasts, you hear things, you know, even like for reporters, like every time John Carlos Stanton gets on Zoom, we ask him how, I mean, I, I did this yesterday. I asked him what differences he's feeling now um, after a year training with Eric Cressy than he felt last year, you know, and he said mobility, flexibility, genuinely good things. He's probably tired of that, but it is the question in fans' minds. And so that obviously covers, you know, we need to convey to readers the things that they need to know about this team. And that is an essential part of it. But, you know, it's like Greg Bird once told me, um, you know, that like fans would go up to him and be like, or, you know, can you sign my ball? And then as soon as like he would like take the pen, they'd be like, so are you going to stay on the field this year? (laughs) And it's like, I imagine that happens in every market. Um, but the expectations are so high and there's just a high volume of Yankees fans. Like, honestly, if someone said that to me, that would just like break me. Do, like, yeah, do you really yeah, think yeah. that this like 
mid-20s first baseman wants to be hurt all the time, he's signing your baseball. Like, I just think there's so many different avenues and it's just, I mean, I feel it. Like, I would like to disengage from feedback of all sorts. Um, But unfortunately, I never have 55,000 people booing me if I, you know, give up five runs and four innings or whatever. So it's, it's, it's pretty omnipresent, I would say. Uh, we, we talked about the starting rotation. Um, I, when you think about kind of the, once baseball gets going as in terms of real games and kind of that first month of the season, um, I think all eyes will be on the rotation and kind of who's healthy and who's pitching well. But are, are there any other storylines that you're kind of looking for in terms of, of questions to be answered about how good this team is or, or will potentially be? You know, the they've had pitching problems, obviously. They've been cobbling together rotation for the last three years I've been covering them. But, like, think about how much more cushion they would have to have J-Hap go out and give up four runs over five innings if they had all of their best hitters in the lineup. And I really think that's part of it. Like, they're, yes, their pitching staff has to perform, but, like, But but the offense, for as good as it has been, could be even better. And so when I think about a lineup right now, like let's say Yankees fans are going to hate uh, hate my idea of this, but like <laughs> let's say you go DJ LeMahieu, Aaron Judge, Aaron Hicks, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, Luke Voigt, or whatever. I mean, then you're pushing what Gary Sanchez, Glaber Torres mm-hmm. down the lineup. But you know you have a guy who can get on base in a number of ways. Judge has great plate discipline and, you know, they don't want to make a mistake to him. Hicks, they know that they can't pitch around. Um, And then Stanton, I mean, he'll just, he'll just obliterate it. Um, It just, I, I think having Judge and Stanton and Hicks and Gary productively and, and all of these guys in the lineup at once, like, I would not want to be an opposing pitcher because where the hell can you take a break if everyone is humming? Um, and I, I just think that's the thing. I just, I just think that this lineup uh, and and the approach that they take, and this is, this is really Aaron Boone's, uh, you know, for whatever you may think of the quote, savages in the box thing. Like he doesn't just want them to hit 500 foot dingers. Mm-hmm. He wants them to wear guys down and I just don't think that through the injuries and through the slumps and whatnot that they have uh completely taken advantage of of just wearing opposing pitchers down well then Andahar is not making the team (laughs) (laughs) can can you believe this I I don't even know what to say about this anymore (laughs) yeah that's just I don't know he's one of those guys where his swing decisions are just bad, and for a while he was talented enough that that didn't matter. And you know, in the big leagues, it just does. So, yeah, I'm. I don't even know if they, if they were to move him as part of some midseason package for probably more pitching, right? Then I don't even know what what kind of weight he'd carry in a deal like that. Because he, even in in the winter, he's another one of those guys where Kevin and I were talking about this before. A bunch of dudes went to winter ball, played really well. And they got signed, and whether it's you know Neftali Feliz or Michael Noah or David Paulino or whatever, 
Um, but Andohar was down there and he even he had trouble. Like he the issues are still the same issues. So yeah, I don't I don't know what to, to really think about what's going on there. I just assumed it was gonna be six hit, six power. Who cares if he can play third base or not? But that's just not been the case. Yeah, I mean I just there's there's nowhere to play him. There are no at bats available for him, which so I don't know how you rebuild his value. Um, but like I just think I just think there has to be some way for the Yankees to be getting more value out of Miguel and Duhar, whether it's through a return package or whatever mm-hmm. it is, then they are getting from having him as a sort of non-positional hitting depth. Um, you know, like Gio Urshela had elbow surgery. He should be ready for opening day. So like, you're not going to move your third baseman right now or your, your, I guess backup third baseman right now, but like, is he a perfect hitter? No. Do I really know what he's like as a, as a hitter right now after the missed time and the, and the, and the lack of playing time? No, I don't know. Um, I just, I, it, it, it's just baffling. And, and I do feel for him, you know, like he, He wants to play. Um, there's just not really a spot for him. Right. Um, well, let's let's finish on that. Is with with I don't know being the official <laughs> term of the 2021 yes. baseball season. Uh, Lindsay, I want to thank you for coming on. You can read her stuff at the Athletic. If you want to follow her on Twitter and watch her play amateur psychologist with Yankees fans, <laughs> she's at uh, at Lindsay Adler. No spaces or anything between the two names. Uh, and Lindsay, uh, when are you heading out to Tampa again? Um, on the 18th. Well, have a good time out there. We will be following you. And thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. podcast thanks to Lindsay for joining us and being great as expected uh you're listening to the music of nathan bernay lo-fi indie rock from a suburban basement in st charles missouri uh if you don't know nathan he is used to be in so many dynamos target market and he's currently the front person for kangaroo pocket so we certainly know he knows how to name a band uh, and, and lo-fi is a great explanation uh, great description for what we listen to it has a, a bit of a Hope Nathan doesn't take us personally. Bit of a pavement feel to it. Um, you can find Nathan's stuff at his Bandcamp site, nathanbernay.bandcamp.com. Bernay is a French name uh, spelled B-E-R-N-A-I-X. Thanks to Nathan for providing the tunes for the show. You ready for viewer mail? Yeah, let's do it. It's viewer mail time. 
They're viewing. Our first email comes from Kaz. And Kaz says, I have a question regarding talent evaluation during spring training. Obviously, it's a great opportunity to see prospects face established MLB veterans as NRIs and JICs, just in case players. But veterans may be playing it easy in early portions of the spring and experimenting with some weird shit like Granky. In some cases, we can catch foreign imports adjusting to a new league in a new country like Otani in 2018. More importantly, spring training is a small sample and some players might just be playing out of their minds. I remember Jerry Tapoto saying spring is not a great time to evaluate on his podcast. How much of what we see in March should we take account into evaluation? Is it different for backfields? Uh, that's from Kaz Yamazaki. If you don't know Kaz, Kaz does some stuff for BP, primarily focusing on um, the Japanese world. He lives in Japan. He goes to a ton of baseball games there. He is a very cool dude. You should follow him on Twitter uh, and read his stuff. I like Kaz a lot. And and if something goes down in Japan, maybe we'll have him on the show at some point. Um, but let's talk about spring training as an evaluation tool. Um, I hate it. <laughs> so... Um, I think spring's fun. Uh, like Kaz says, I really do like, uh, you know, watching players and doing uh, the term I was using, body checks. It's always like, oh, that's what this guy looks like. This is how he operates. This is what his delivery looks like. This is what his swing looks like. This is what he looks like in the field. That kind of thing. But using as a as a as a, a tool to say this guy is good or bad, I think is a huge mistake. Like you say, um, you know, players are always working on stuff. Some players are half-assing it. Some players are half-assing it intentionally. Like they have their own um self-defined ramp up and you know when i say half-assing they're not being lazy it's just this is how they they they, they ramp up their speeds and they're playing at 70 percent you know especially in early march um you know guys are ramping up it's it's a it's a, a crappy time i think the games get a lot more interesting once you get into the the fifth or sixth inning when the big leaguers are out because then you have players who are in front of the big league coaching staff for the first time and actually trying to impress them as opposed to the guy who knows he has a job and is just kind of getting his reps in. Uh, but as far as you know, using as a, a real evaluation tool, I think it's a big mistake. And you don't see a lot of teams... Um, teams try to avoid leaning too much on spring training looks and performances as far as those late March meetings where they decide who the 26-man roster is going to be. Um, you know, that, that's defined by injuries more than how a guy looks. It's really hard to kind of earn a spot, if you will, unless there was an obvious battle. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to usurp the established guy, if you will. Um, so I think it's good to look at these players. Like, it's fun to look at these players. Like, it's fun to see, you know, hey, look at this dude hit a ball 107. That's great. And it's a good time. But like, as far as like saying whether a guy's suddenly good or not, I, I, don't think it's a good tool for that i just just enjoy the game and 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 for some of these players you've never seen before which uh, is the case for everyone there are players in spring training that we've watched that that you and i have never seen before um and, and you know to get a look at these guys is always really valuable but as far as an evaluation tool not into it yeah i agree with you i wouldn't use this stretch on its own as the foundation for anyone's report the context of it as you've discussed and i think is outlined almost perfectly in the email is just too bizarre and individualized uh, to really have a great idea of uh, the true talent level. The pitching population is diluted. And so hitter performance is going to be, uh, you know, different should be viewed through that lens as well. I think the one thing that is interesting to note here is you, know, you mentioned uh, the body check. And I think in a, in a very specific way, that, uh, that you can start to at least identify who might be better or worse, or at the very least different, 
by what they look like compared to they did last year, both physically and maybe mechanically. And certainly if a guy is like, I saw Jake Brent's lefty with the Royals. Uh, yeah. You sent some video out of that last week. Yeah. Right. So you know, he, this guy was 91, 94 in 2019 and was 95 to 99 in my look at him last Thursday. That's different enough that my opinion of him has, has probably changed. Right. So there are definitely some, some doesn't he have to do it again though. And I bring up, I bring this up because of David Paulino of all people. Um, David was a former, like, highly regarded Astros prospect. He was kind of an extra guy in, in one of the very first trades I was involved with, or Jose Veras off the backfield, even though he's having Tommy John. You know, worked his way in the Astros top 10, like 6'8 righty, pure power stuff, could spin the hell out of it. Yeah. And never could stay healthy, some other issues there. And, right, and, yeah, I remember and, there was a team rules suspension at some point. And went away. Uh, ended up going to the Blue Jays and, and didn't work out there the, and, and had a, a really good winner in the Dominican. Um, tons of strikeouts, a few walks, but tons of strikeouts and, and was, you know, I talked to someone who saw him down there, like a, a scout from the Dominican, 95, 98. So all of a sudden, like the Velo is back and the Phillies signed him, I think at the end of December, maybe at the beginning of January, um, doesn't matter. And he got into his first game. And it was like 97, 95, 97. I was like, oh, crap. Is this guy, this guy's got some stuff back here. And he pitched pretty well. And then his second game was on the backfields and it was 92, 94. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I think, yes, that there's the confidence should be reinforced by the repeatability of it. Um, if a guy looks different, if he's got a new swing or his arm action is clearly different or something like that, I'm just more likely to believe that the new thing we're seeing from a performance perspective is real if there's some other obvious change that would support that the player is different now. Like for a guy to be the same visually and mechanically and all that other stuff and just be performing better would make me more skeptical than if something had had changed in a noticeable way. But I I see what you're saying. Like, you know, Jake Brents was 95, 99, but got hit around. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there are other reasons for that, but uh but yeah, I, I agree with you. And this like begs the question, right? So Mackenzie Gore pitched yesterday. I saw him throw last Thursday. He's my number two prospect in baseball. He's in a tier on his own. He's the best pitching prospect in baseball in a tier on his own, uh, in my opinion, to this point. He didn't look like that on Thursday. He didn't look like that. He got beat uh, up a little bit. Yeah. The following Wednesday. So then at what point, Kevin, is the right time to move him at what point is the right time to to reconfigure one's opinion about an individual an individual player how much change do you need to see and over how much time then before you say okay now i think i buy into this or that up or down for an individual player that's the question then was the stuff what was the stuff what you expected in terms of velocity and movement yeah like i okay. know mckenzie gore is Two, 92 to 96, the upper end of that range when he wants to really reach back for it and finish a guy off or when Joey Gallo is standing in there, right, as was the case. And the movement on his secondary stuff is just okay. It's going to be command dependent, but that is the piece of it that it seems a variable now. So in this specific case, he, his touch and feel is the thing that has been there in the past, was purportedly not there at the alt site last year, and now hasn't been there in his first two outings. So at what point, certainly the first spring outing, the the guy's first meaningful baseball in over a year, 
is not the time I should expect him to have precise touch and feel command of his changeup so that it's just out of the zone every time or that his slider is just off the plate glove side every single time because that's how Mackenzie Gore's stuff needs to be located to play because he doesn't have elite high-end secondary stuff. He really doesn't. So it's the innings volume that I expect him to eat. And again, that's dependent on the command too. Uh, that is why I hold him in this regard above some of like the Nate Pearson type guys of the world. Um, but at what point then does that, that is the thing that has to progress is his ability to locate with precision, which hasn't been there for the, for the first two starts. The stuff has been what I expected, just not that piece. That is the, is the I, variable. I think if the stuff is what you expect, I wouldn't go moving him yet. I, I mean, I honestly would just kind of, I don't know, have a mental check mark next to the name and check in maybe a month into the season. Like I, I honestly, if, if, if he was, if the stuff wasn't there, I'd, I'd be concerned. But if it's there and like he's just having location issues, I, I wouldn't move him a, a, a tick yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That it's just what what point, you know. And I and I'm with you. I think like a month or so into the season, if by, and it's weird because it's going to be pushed back. But uh, if by June. He still is, you know, walking a bunch of guys and, uh, you know, missing with his fastball in such a way that it is hittable, and that's happening consistently. Then maybe we have a, a real problem here, or at least might be time at that point. Like, really, the question is: At what point do the Padres go? Do we have to change something here? Uh, we've let this guy do his own thing in sort right. of u- unique mechanical way for so long. Do at what point do we say, hey, you know, this isn't working? Um, so, and then, yeah, from our perspective, then does our anticipation of that mean that we should just not come off him at all? And that's like one of those questions that I just don't have an answer to. And, and I think for for a lot of teams, you're talking about player now. Now you're talking about a player development issue. And, and for a lot of teams like that, it's always better um, to let the player come to that realization as opposed to just telling him, like they have to fail first. Um. Yeah. And, and and want the help. It's hard to tell. You know, obviously teams have ideas about how players should hit or how players should do mechanics. Um, you know, if a player has a swing that you need thinks needs some adjustments, but he just got drafted out of high school where he hit six fifty every year and then he just hit, you know, three hundred three twenty in complex ball, it's real tough to go up to him and go, Hey, you gotta change some stuff. Like that's hard. It's a hard conversation to have. Um you have to wait until you know, that player gets to full season ball and it's May 15th and they're hitting 220 um, for you to go to them and say, you know, look, we think you need to make some changes. Then they're a lot more open to, to just in, initiating that conversation. Um, and I think the same goes for pitcher or anyone who just kind of let them go because they're doing so well, which which happens all the time. Like not broke, don't fix it, I think is a really good way to go in player development. But, it, you know, they, they need to understand or or. or realize themselves that something's going wrong. I am right. This is an old story, but like, you know, when the, the Royals had that huge draft and, and Mike Musakis was part of it, you know, no one on the planet thought Mike Musakis was a shortstop, but Mike did. And he went out to Burlington and he played shortstop for half a year. And then, and I, and I think he came to his own realization that I'm not as good as these guys at shortstop. And he moved to third base, you know? Um, and it was Casey easy. Kelly is a two way guy is another example. Yeah, that, right? it's easier to have guys figure that out themselves as opposed to have a conversation that they're going to be resistant to. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next email comes from Kaysen. Kaysen says, Is there a difference in lacking barrel control manipulation and having a grooved swing? 
I would imagine they go hand in hand, but a groove swing seems like something you could possibly fix, whereas barrel manipulation is more innate. Um, it's a very specific question, but I think it leads to a different kind of conversation, if you don't mind. Um, we can get to those definitions if you want, but I, I think in terms of like video and data and mechanics and all that stuff, um, I think I, I hope it's it's pretty obvious, you know, with, with you know what teams are doing that you don't see and what some people are doing that you do see that are more public, like the, you know, like driveline and things like that. That in general, the world of um, kind of like really advanced video mechanics is way ahead on the pitching front than the hitting front. Um, it's been the case in the start; it's still the case now. And I and personal philosophy. I was having this discussion with with someone with the team last week. Um, and this is my personal belief in this is just that um, so much of hitting is hand-eye coordination. And I don't know if we're capable of measuring that. And I don't know if we are capable of improving that. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a shitty scouting cliche, but it's probably true hitters hit. And I think a huge portion of that is, is hand-eye coordination, which is reflected in this, and to use your term, barrel control, barrel manipulation. Uh, and I don't know what you can do to improve that you can maybe like loosen out or extend the range of a groove swing to help them with that but if they don't have it they don't have it yeah i i agree with you i think that's at, at one point that is how we felt about certain aspects of the pitching repertoire um or at least the way we as an industry were projecting on velocity was entirely frame based uh, and now it's advantageous for pitchers, in my opinion. I think a lot of teams behave this way on the amateur market, especially, you know, it's nice to look at the late round draft picks because there's just so many of them. And it tells you a little bit more about what the teams are doing, much more than their early few round draft picks. So you get teams like Baltimore and, you know, you guys while you were with Houston who uh, drafted the underlying traits and then developed the velocity piece. And part of the reason that uh, that pitching is ahead is also because it's a thing that the pitcher's in control of. There's something that hitters have to react to a thing. Right. Uh, it's not in their control. And the the pieces of their brain, you know, it's what, what's going on there is ocular and neurological. It's not evident in 2,000 frames per second high-speed video shot from right behind the pitcher in the bullpen. You just can't... Uh, it's, it's hidden what's going on that allows hitters to hit. So, yes, I, I, I still think even some of the most advanced teams, the teams who you would consider analytically progressive, are the ones who do say, like, look, good hitters just hit. And I think at some point, teams, if they're not already doing it, will make an effort to try to understand what's going on in the hitter's eyes and brain during that fraction of a second that the ball is hurtling toward the strike zone uh, and you're seeing it now with like gaze tracking and mm -hmm. uh, some of the virtual reality training stuff that's going on although there are other reasons for that to try to train that decision making process uh, with volume you know if, if I can put a VR headset on and watch 100 pitches from Clayton Kershaw before I have to face him tomorrow that's just I don't know I don't know what difference that makes for an individual person or if it varies person to person as to the difference it makes. Uh, the thing about the high-speed video that I've collected over the last couple of years now is it does make it much easier to see 
the specifics of the the barrel control piece. Like, can a guy go down and scoop a ball? Can a guy shorten his swing and impact the baseball at the top of the strike zone and everywhere in between? Um, and also watching the swings and misses occur on high-speed video, it's almost always because of missed location. It's almost it's it's not often because of timing. Sometimes suboptimal contact is generated because of timing, but due to missed bats, do it because their their shit moves. Um, and so that's been that's seeing that has worked its way into the way I think about uh, valuing this stuff too. But th- to answer the question. Yes, like I just use those two things interchangeably. If a guy has a grooved swing, uh, then by definition to me, he doesn't have barrel control. They're they're basically the inverse of, of one another. The guy with no, the grooved swing. You can't have grooved swing and a barrel control because your right. swing is grooved and you can't get the balls outside of your yeah. swing path. But I And I'm like you, I don't know if you can fix that piece of it. There's just something about... I think maybe you can adjust the guy's mechanics. In yeah, a way I just say there's some there's some aspect to some groups to some aspects to some groove swing. I'll try to qualify this more, um, where the you know the the groove swing is a, is a is a product of certain mechanics, and you can try to get that out of him to give him more flexibility or more, you know, a larger zone where he can make contact in. But he's still his eyes still have to work, and that's that's I think that's such a a black box at times as yeah. to how that works. Right, and there are a few examples of players who have like failed a vision exam and their bonus got whacked right yeah it's pretty clear that vision's a huge part yeah um but it is one of those things that like i don't know what part of the brain is firing when you have to decide whether or not to swing at a pitch and the there are probably some ethical implications of trying to understand that about <laughs> like you know children <laughs> Amateur players, uh, that is, you know, it's a Rubicon that I don't know if I'd be willing to cross, even if I, even if I, if you told me, like, I went to some neuroscience conference and see a guy in a Yankees cap, and I'm like, hey, I'm a baseball writer. You want to talk about how, you know, the entire baseball industry is maybe missing something here in your field? And I bet that that guy would tell me a bunch of stuff, but, yeah. um, but I don't know then how you, you know, like the NBA assesses young players growth plates to see how much room they have left to grow and like that kind of gives me the skeevies a little bit there's always been talk about for international players because they're so young and, and obviously right. not physical mature of, of of taking x-rays of their wrists because i think that the wrists I'm, I'm gonna miss part of this so bear with me some of this is wrong but this is what i'm gonna say um there's some sort of like bone to cartilage ratio in your wrist that 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 changes as you go through puberty as you have your growth spurt and everything like that and looking at that ratio of bone to cartilage in your wrist uh, allows you to help project how big someone's going to get. And there's been talk of, of, you know, just doing a wrist x-ray on a kid to, to help understand how large he's going to be. Yeah, and that's the type of thing that fascinates me. And it's in that vein of, you know, 15, 16-year-old Eric watching the NFL Combine and trying to find interesting correlates between how they're performing athletically and how they perform on the field later. Like that stuff fascinates me. But now, yeah, we're entering a realm where it's like, do you really want to take a 14 year old kid and x-ray his wrist to better understand what kind of athlete he's going to be when he's Mm -hmm. 22? Like, no, we should. And these are the types of things that MLB and just American pro sports and, and probably global pro sports 
hasn't thought to even legislate against. We're just in this territory of exploration that MLB doesn't even know that there's maybe an ethical issue that might be breached here. It wouldn't surprise me if the Players Association wasn't thinking about long-term implications of uh, teams tracking the sleep of their players and like collecting oh, biometric data like that. Oh, they have, they absolutely. So like, it's, it's interesting. Um, you, you know, the, the uh, teams do it with minor leaguers and, and a lot of teams have started to do this, especially at spring, during spring training where the, the, the players are wearing um, tracking devices, basically, that allows you to see how they're moving and how much they're moving and things like that. And um, everything from that to like the, the bat sensors that you put on the knob of the bat, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, the players association has said, yeah, don't use that. Like, don't, don't do it. Don't, if they ask you to say no, um, they're going to use it against you. And so, I mean, the players are very aware of some of the technology, but it's uh, in terms of, they're like fine with the, like the pure baseball stuff, but some of this that's not directly baseball related, um, they've taken a pretty strong stance and made it pretty clear that players do not, do not participate in this. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's ethically, you know, a little ugly and if it has nothing directly to do with baseball you should question it yeah all you have to do is look at the the it's a microcosm like so many things in baseball are of a broader societal issue which is like here's this phone in my pocket that is tracking this that and the other thing that you know here i'll agree to these terms and conditions right uh and then the long-term implications of that have been pretty bad not even long-term just short-term you know how long have cell phones really been around i don't know i had my first one at Probably at like 16, it was T9. Texting uh, Abby Cunningham is mm-hmm. like a high school junior or whatever. But, um, and yeah, that was grueling. Um, and now it's just totally different, right? And, and yeah, the way, yeah. the I think that the thing that is in the corner of the the people who are proponents of this type of stuff is integration at the amateur level. Uh, you see the blast motion and kinetic tracking stuff at area code games. Like they have a booth in addition to going and buying a new glove or a new bat. You know, you can get a blast motion sensor put on the knob of your, your bat and a readout comes into an app on your phone. Um, and so I think if you, players are being exposed to that type of stuff at the amateur level and they know it's cool too, they're just fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, that might, we might have a different, approach from players who might be more willing to do that type of stuff all it takes is someone convincing them that it's that it's good for them to do yeah you know, whether they do it by saying hey like if that guy doesn't do it and you do guess who the org is more likely to promote all all else being equal right well, the minor, i mean the minor leaguers are in the union they don't have a choice you know all the minor leaguers are willing to put you know blast right. motion sensors on their bats it's, it's when you go up to a big leaguer and, and then they have every right and most of them do say no I want to, one thing that hasn't happened in the public realm is maybe this, this pre-draft combine that we're going to get um, will start to illuminate some of that stuff is age over age trends in some of this underlying stuff. Like mm-hmm. we can say, all right, here's exit velocity, but like I don't have, I mean, I can piece it together because like Kylie's got TrackMan data from a couple years ago. I have TrackMan data from 19. We're about to have TrackMan data from, we had a big league season, now we'll have a bunch more in the minors and and a big league season coming up here. It'd be really fascinating to be like, all right, what was 17-year-old Tatis performing like in this measurable way? Right. And then when did it explode? 
and what are the visual cues that indicated it was about to explode, right? Like that's the type of thing that yeah. uh, that publicly we're just behind on that. We just don't have the year-over-year year stuff in the background from amateur and minor league players to track those trends. Surely we can see, all right, well, Juan Soto, when he's 19, this is what it looks like, but that's a different beast. Yeah, I mean, He's can, not the normal 19-year-old. Right, but I mean, even younger, like you can go to international workout down the Dominican and even a showcase where there's 100 players and, and literally – the whole morning is just four hours of batting practice. You're just four hours watching swings. Um, hundred guys take BP. I don't know. Four balls go over the fence. Yep. The whole time, you know, and there's plenty of dudes there who are going to hit 20, 30 bombs a year in the big leagues. Plenty of, them, you know, and you got to find which ones, but it's, it's, you're not going to see guys blasting balls. It just doesn't happen. They're not, they're not big and strong enough. And yeah, you got to, sure. you need to like, you know, calibrate that. And, and I think, you know, scouts, especially international scouts, obviously have calibrated themselves visually to that. But um, there's going to be a calibrate data-wise coming down the pike at some point, right? I think so. Yeah, like, like you know, that 15 year old kid is hitting balls 95 miles an hour. That's really good. That's you know, that's a, that's a top 10 percentile. It's right. Well below. It's it's not it's not even mid range for a big leaguer, obviously, but for a 15 year old kid, that's real power. At the and then at that level too, you have to be more specific and granular with how you're defining. Like a year, a kid who just turned 15 is way different physically than a kid who is 15 and nine months. Like that nine months of physical development on an adolescent could have huge implications, right? So, um, so yeah, like it has to be more granular at that level, and uh, then can kind of get diluted as you as you climb the age ladder, so to speak. But uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see how some of those teams. Uh, there's like the Fraser Perez story, right, where he he warmed up, and the Yankees saw the TrackMan readout during his warm up, and like signed him, basically like talked to the agent. And he never threw a pitch officially in the game; he just warmed up, uh, and that's all the Yankees needed to see to to sign him, rather than let him be seen by the other teams at the event. They were the only ones looking at the TrackMan readout at their facilities, mm-hmm. you know, in the scout tower, and like signaled down to the agent a number. And the agent pulled the kid off the mound. Yeah, and um, if you if you go to a showcase in the Dominican, like the Yankees often show up with, it's another, um, you know, another ball measurement thing. It's it's called a flight scope. Mm-hmm. Um, they show up at these showcases with with a flight scope. Man, flight scope. There was one area code game where the the unit was not calibrated <laughs> right yeah that happens and we were all watching it and just like that's not right even mm-hmm. the scouts who at that time were just like so what does it mean I, there was a point where the at the showcases uh and especially at area codes where they put up monitors so that you can see like the rap soto or the trackman or whatever was set up that that weekend basically because it's it's rotated who has done the pitch tracking at that event there's just monitors for you to see the velo and the spin rate and the axis and you know the exit velo if there was one and there was a point where the scouts were just like so wait what is good again like what should i be looking for and they even they knew it was fucked up yeah and even with and even with like you know the track mandate that we get out of the minor league games and even some big league games like it's it's, it's clear to you know almost every team has an analyst or multiple analysts whose job is to kind of recalibrate the data they're getting Every like they're all every one of them. It's pretty clear if you look at the raw raw data that it's not pointed perfectly and it's off by an inch and it, you know something and they have to make their adjustments based on that. Um, next email comes from Jason. 
Jason says, uh, KG, when you first started working for the Astros, what was the thing that surprised you the most? Like you had no idea this was the way things work inside a baseball front office or maybe the way something happens on the field pregame or in-game. Uh, my answer is everything. Um, yeah, I didn't know what I was in for. And, and I had a lot of surprises. Like the thing that always strikes me, um, like just on a pure transactional level, is kind of the value of a 40-man spot and, and kind of the difficult decisions that go into 40-man spots and putting guys on and taking guys off. Um, but like on a more macro level if you will um just like the overwhelming number of human beings it takes to run a team um like you're talking about hun- like literally hundreds of people in player development um and just all the people that have to be there when you have a game um just all everything you know everything from the hot dog vendors to the security to people handing all the systems to people you know how busy a media box is um in terms of, of team employees taking care of you know, not just like the beat writers, but all the people that are there to also help like the visiting TV hook into all the cables and stuff like that. Um, the number of people running around the tunnels, taking care of things like the number of human beings involved uh, to actually put on a major league baseball team was one of the more overwhelming things for me. Um, it's there's so many human beings involved that are not players. Um, yeah. It's crazy. When I first began interning for the Phillies AAA affiliate, that that is the thing. The two things you mentioned, the first one about the value of the 40-man spot is verbatim a thing that another former internet uh, baseball writer who now works for a team mentioned to me when I was like, what is the thing that most surprised you? That is what he said. Uh, it's a person who you might know. But um, but then, the, yeah, the sheer number of people when I started working for the Iron Pigs and I did every one of those jobs, whether it was uh, hauling beers up and down the aisles <laughs> or... Uh, grilling hot dogs or selling foam fingers or doing promo and, and ticketing and advertising stuff. Yeah, the, the sheer number of personnel is amazing. And it's it's magnified at the big league level, at the minor league level, and then especially at the college level, people get stretched pretty thin um, individually. Like it really does consume – your life in a, in a different way, I think at the at the minor league and then at the collegiate level, a lot of the you know, like the media relations person for the the Spurs or the Royals or whoever, their job is just to worry about the Kansas City Royals. Right. But at a at the University of uh, Missouri, then that person probably has baseball and like women's volleyball and soccer. Right. Yeah. 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 And track and like they're coordinating so many different things, and then the further down the whatever you know professional rung uh, you get, the more and more responsibilities and the more of uh, your life it consumes. So like when I was interning with the Pigs, it was the inaugural year of the franchise. It was 2008. The Phillies were great. Uh, the the ballpark was uh, an hour and a half north of Philadelphia. And uh, it was packed. We had so many bugs that needed to be worked out that we didn't anticipate. Parking was a huge issue that first night when the Phillies scrimmaged the uh, the Iron Pigs, which was like, um, you know, it was a bunch of lifers. It was um, uh, Andy Tracy and Mike Servanak. Nice. And uh, John Knott. And who was uh, Steve... Oh man, Steve Klein was, you know, in the, his, the final throws uh, in a way that was like kind of painful to watch sometimes. And I've seen him on the backfield here in Arizona and he kind of regrets, you know, some of the dugout tirades he had that last year. Jason Jaramillo <laughs> was like the best prospect in the team. Anyway, 
Yeah, it was it was an it was nuts. It was um, people from all over the country, from other minor league affiliates, came together uh, to start this one from scratch, and they were all living together, and there was a lot of drama that stems from that. Um, and yeah, that was the thing that when I was in as close to, I've come to this type of scenario, I can vouch for that. There's just the sheer number of man hours and and people that go into, into putting on this show. And there wasn't even anybody doing any roster related stuff. It was just, it's a minor league operation. So it's, you're entertaining people and selling and selling signage. Um, last question comes from Elijah. Elijah says, uh, my question goes to the psychology and humanness of pitchers. Well, statistically, it makes all the sense in the world to use pitchers situationally. It also seems that pitchers have a hard time adjusting to not having a defined role. So that led me to several thoughts when deciding which stars to convert to relief, as there seem to be very few pure relief prospects, is how well the pitcher will adjust given much consideration. Most often, I read or heard about workload injury risk or a lack of that extra pitch as a reason for shifting an arm to the pen. So while most big relievers have made that adjustment to pitching and relief, do teams then consider their players' psychological profiles individually and as a unit to figure out who is best suited to shifting roles? Perhaps this will be a moot point as teams are changing their expectations for what a starter's role and a pitcher's and pitchers are just all pitchers at the end of the day, no matter when they got their outs. Um, it's a fun question. It's a, it's I you'll think you'll hear a lot of differing opinions on this. Um, it is my experience that players are very comfortable in a role. Players want to know what their role is. Players want to know what they're expected to do. Um, I, I, I think there are pitchers who probably have a hard time adjusting, for example, to what the Rays do. There are plenty of relief arms who are going to literally hang in the locker room and maybe even take a nap um, and not head out, not head out to the bullpen until the fifth or sixth inning. Um, and, and, and there are plenty of guys who, you know, I know no one likes to hear this. There are plenty of guys who, you know, the closer mentality is a cliche that gets made fun of a lot. I don't care. I believe in it. I think there are Me guys. Too. I think there are guys who uh, can handle the last three outs of an inning. I think there are guys who do, who, who handle it uh, less well. I, I guess is how I will put it. Um, and there's also just a comfort level. And this is not a pitching story, but it's a hitter story. And and um, it's interesting to see kind of some of the 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 stuff coming out of of. George Springer with the Toronto Blue Jays. And obviously, I think on paper, it probably makes sense for George Springer to hit third or fourth. Um, George Springer's way more comfortable and, and and is very happy hitting leadoff. And he's you can see he's been hitting leadoff for the Blue Jays a lot. And I think that's probably where he's going to end up because where he wants to be. And if that's where the dude wants to be and he thinks he's better there, let him hit leadoff. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a batting order. If you're not hitting him eighth, if he hits first or fourth, eh, fine. And so I, you know, with pitchers, it's interesting. I remember someone mentioning to me when Verlander... Uh, had to get his, his his surgery and you know his first major you know time missed and everything like that, and obviously uh, advancing his age. Someone said something to me like, "You think he'd maybe come back in like a John Smoltz thing?" And and my first thought was, I can't imagine having the conversation with Justin Verlander and telling him you want to pitch in relief, because um, that dude wants to start. I can't even imagine him being open to that. And there are other guys who I think would be happy to do it. There are some guys who are like as long as you put me in the game, I don't care. There are plenty of guys like that, and it, and they mean it, and it and it is true. And I think the Rays have done a really good job with the way they do pitching, um, which I still think is more because they have to as opposed to really smart. Um, that that it, they've done a good job kind of having their guys accept the fact that shit, I might pitch the third, and I might pitch the, might pitch the seventh. I think they've done a really good job kind of adjusting their arms mentally to that kind of thing but there are plenty of dudes who 
uh, are comfortable in a certain role. I say it all the time. I've probably, this is episode four. It's probably the fourth episode I've said this in. Um, players are not stratomatic cards. Uh, they're human beings. You can't expect equal production when you when you change what you're expecting of them. Um, and so, yeah, teams definitely take that stuff into consideration. And there are very long discussions uh, with teams, primarily coaches and players, to discuss their kinds of roles. I know, you know, I can think of times where, you know, a, a player was asked to change his position and, um, you know, went from, you know, what he was used to, something wasn't very useful and was absolutely miserable about it and didn't like it and hated playing that that new position. Didn't, you know, and it, and it definitely affected things. So uh, it happens all the time. Players, uh, players like comfort. Players thrive when they are comfortable. And so you, you try to make sure that they are exactly that. I think that, so I totally agree with you on the closure mentality thing. I think what I said about the earlier assimilation applies to this piece of it too, like what the Rays do, if the way they make their players understand it is, you know, basically you're going to be deployed based on the leverage index and that's done at an earlier stage, I think that you're more likely to have the players be comfortable with and buy into that. Like the reason I believe the closure mentality is a thing uh, and I'll expound upon that momentarily, but it's the same, the same thing is like, uh, like it's perception. So it's, I used this on a podcast the other day, but wait, you wait, you do you do other podcasts? I did, yeah, another. Sorry, yeah. So we my, talked. My we, vocal cords aren't monogamous. I thought we talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I wanna, I want to talk into other microphones, Kevin. Um, so we have an but, open relationship. Uh, yeah, it's it's poly poly audit, auditory. I don't know. I can't think of a. <laughs> well, I've read a book about it, so we can surely we'll be able to do it. But um, but yeah, like <laughs> look, it's safer to it's safer to fly than it is to drive to the airport, and yet people are scared to fly, and so I understand that you're like, hey, look, you're a professional baseball player, you've pitched in front of a lot of people before. Why should these three outs in the ninth inning be any different than three outs in the seventh inning? But if a dude perceives it to be that way, then it just kind of is, right? Like at the yeah. same time, flying is statistically safe. You are in a chair in the sky going a couple hundred miles per hour, aren't you? So Yes, you're, like, de you're defying gravity. You frame it that way, and it sounds like a scary thing. Um, but but I like the way the Rays do it. Um, I, I totally agree that there are certain levels. Comfortability is an important part of this. Getting your players to buy in to the way you want to do things then becomes the challenge and the thing that if you can do, it renders that stuff moot. I do think there are people who are built to pitch in the ninth inning or in, you know, pick a role, whatever it is. There are guys who are not. And then there are guys who can, over time, adjust to that. It was weird being a Phillies fan and knowing Jimmy Rollins wanted to lead off and also knowing that Charlie Manuel didn't want him to. Right. <laughs> and watch that interplay occur and know that when Brad Lidge seemed to come in in a non-safe situation, that boy, he really sucked. <laughs> And this is all anecdotal. And then, you know, Ryan Matson comes in when Lidge starts to be bad consistently and struggles in the closer role initially, then develops one of the dirtiest relief changeups of the last century and is great then after that, like was totally fine after a little while when he was closing it. And so I think the answer is that it depends on the dude. Some guys can't, some guys can't, and some guys can over time. Uh, and then I think the thing that is folly is to try to guess which of them is is that one? Uh, 
who's, you know, it's one thing to look at Jonathan Papelbon or whoever is breathing fire out there stomping around on the mound uh, and know that, yeah, that guy, that guy wants the ball in the ninth inning. Like, that's pretty easy. But trying to pick out who, if you gave him the chance over time to develop that comfortability, would versus who would not, that is the thing that I think is folly to try to predict. Uh, that does it for the email. As always, if you want to send us an email, ask us anything. It's chinmusic at fangraphs.com. It's time to get an update from Eric. Eric, what have you been up to? You're not working hard at all these days, are you? I'm uh, I'm doing Big sigh. Stuff. Big sigh. Well, I'm trying to think about how I want to... This is one of the things that's been funny about... Um, Most of your world right now is, is, is kind of consumed by prospect lists. Right. But the pandemic, what I'm trying to get to is that that sound people make on the phone. When you're talking to people on the phone and they're looking through a spreadsheet or they're trying to find the guy's Tommy John date in their system or maybe you have interpersonal conversations with people that don't have to do with anything like that. But people do their gap sound on the phone where they're like, or you know, they're looking for something or thinking about something and they don't want that silence to be in there. And that was what my sigh was about. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of prospect lists, uh, a lot of draft stuff. It's a busy time of year. I'm trying to keep my shit together and be disciplined and you know take care of myself as best I can while I am also doing all of this work the it just sucked like I had to move in October and November basically like that's just when I had to move rather than start prospect lists I had to put a house together you know so um so yeah a little bit behind uh the ideal pace of the lists but there's so much fresh information flowing in now and having you around uh has like i'm not worried about it or really stressing over it in like an anxious oh no way but it is a lot of it is a lot of work to do yeah and i like so, and doing so, it and i feel lucky to be able to do this but um but yeah it is a lot of stuff and so people know like i've gotten i don't know i've, I've started to rework the media muscles and, and i've started to step in on on and, and help eric would get some of these prospect lists out i've spent much of the week writing up uh, detroit tigers prospects as well as talking to um you know people with the tigers and then people outside the tigers who've seen the tigers and you know trying to figure out i, I wrote it you know quick aside um right before we started talking um you know i was working and and i like the Tigers have a very strange prospect. They have a, a, a slugging outfielder who hasn't played yet, who got almost $3 million, who almost nobody saw internationally. Um, and that's a tough guy to write up, uh, you know? And, and so, but yeah, working through this. So just, you know, some of the, I, I don't know. So just, just to kind of help Eric split up the work, it's a ton. And, and Eric's insane and wants to write these long lists. You know, back in the day I was writing up a top 11 and, and it's easy. Like you didn't have to, you know, I had to focus on, like, I know the, the 11 are going to come out of this, these 20 players. I don't need to dig on 60. And so to like dig on three times as many and write up four times as many, I think is, is, is a gargantuan task that no human should have to do alone. Thanks. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you, yeah, no, I, I don't know. know how you got halfway fucking through it, to be honest with you. I, I, I just can't imagine. And I know you put in long days. And I know you're, 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 uh, you have an obsessive personality and that helps, but yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I, um, and anything that I'm about to say might just be me retroactively justifying all of it to myself. Right. But, um, that's, that's, that's all we all do. Come on. But right. That's yeah. That's all that's living baby. I don't know. I'm definitely at some point going to have a conversation with myself about like ambition and directing it toward more meaningful stuff. At the same time, 
I did want to create a more comprehensive central location for people to learn about mm-hmm. prospects. And like I said before, it's it's not at the very top where you can really learn about team behavior and uh, and that type of stuff. It is it is in the middle and at the bottom where teams are taking flyers on random guys. That that's where they tell you what the the trends that they're looking for, the traits that they're looking for, the attributes in the players that they desire uh, and are trying to apply developmental concepts to. So that is where the interesting piece of this rests for me is is in the underbelly. It's in the 35 plus future value tier and below. And it is definitely just part of it is just who I am. Uh, but I didn't want like, it's, it felt weird to me that often players were traded and the prospects involved, just there was nothing on them anywhere. Uh, and so now I think we're at a point where Kyle Glazer at Baseball America did some research to this effect over the course of the offseason. How many players in an average system end up playing in the big leagues at some point during their career? And it is about 40 guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the number of them who end up having a long career is like a third of that. But um, And so it all depends on who you're writing for. And in my case, and I think this is my my has been my biggest flaw, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like, you know, when I this is part of why, and no offense to people listening to this, but I don't like to do my Friday chats. I just feel like I'm people's dynasty league uh jukebox or like, you know, one of those pull string dummies, right? Like that's just not the way I'm engaging with this is different than what a the readership, even at fan graphs, <laughs> like the, what the scope of their focus naturally is. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, at some point, like um, we'll probably have to, to water this down a little bit and try to think of a different way that is a little bit more efficient from a time perspective to disseminate some of this information, because it's nice that I can go to a spring training game and I can get there and sit with my laptop and work until the game and then lock in on the game, see three scouts there that I know, get a bunch of dope from them, know who the other teams are that they are covering, then in subsequent days be texting with them and getting fresh info on all of those prospects at those other games. And then all of that can get baked into the list that comes out. Like the Giants list will come out tomorrow, literally with information that I learned yesterday, right? Right. And there's something really fantastic about that. But also, if we were to get these done sooner, it doesn't, that doesn't preclude me from just include, from, from, well, now the discussion about us changing guys based on spring training comes into play. But that doesn't preclude me from writing about or disseminating any of that information. It makes my lists feel a little less sexy at the time. Right. Uh, but yeah, like there is something kind of seductive about this is the time of year when all here are the prospects on TV. And generating more data now than ever before publicly on Savant, there's just more pitch tracking now. Yeah, it's great. And so it's super, super awesome for like, I texted you and was like, hey, you know someone with Milwaukee. How is Curvin Castro looking at their place right now? And you were like, oh, he's up to 97. And then the scout that was at that game was like, I had him up to 98. Like, that's fantastic. But um, but yeah, I don't know if everyone feels feels that way about it. Like, I just love doing it this way. And, um, but yeah, people get pissed that their Cubs list is now or whatever. Yeah. We'll do them faster in the future. I promise. I'll promise you that right now. Okay. Us, you and I working together and we will think about ways to make this uh, a more efficient process and, and, and they will come out faster in the future. I'm I'm not promising you that I'm promising the listeners that promise you nothing, Eric. 
yeah, well, you, you've broken your promises to me. And <laughs> that's why we haven't slept together. <laughs> Is that the only reason? No. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's go to a moment of culture, Eric. It's when we talk about something not about baseball, some sort of form of entertainment. Uh... A movie, music, a book you've read, music that moved you, anything, whatever. Something that you, you consumed in the world of culture and enjoyed recently. Do you want me to go first while you think of one? No, I'll go first. Go! Do you know who Joe Frank is? No. Oh, I'm kind of surprised by that. Uh, there's a guy, he's dead now, his name is Joe Frank, who, he had like a nomadic radio career, and he has like art, audio art clips. Some of them are like 45 minutes to an hour long, some of them are about 10 minutes long, and they're just so, sort of avant-garde pieces of audio. Uh, his estate has a website, joefrank.com. And I think there's a way where you can sign up as a member on the website and there is like a suite of free uh, audio clips for you to listen to. Uh, this is one of those guys that I think a lot of people probably know. And if you heard his voice and if I played a piece for you, you know instantly like, oh, I've heard this guy on the radio. I was driving one night and was sort of hypnotized by this spoken word piece with like looped music behind it. Um there's a, a documentary about him that I haven't seen yet because it's just not gotten wide distribution. Um, but yeah, he's an interesting cat who uh, who had a lot of health problems and um, put together on tape, like in the 80s and 90s, these really interesting radio spoken word with like a looped drone behind it. I like behind word it. stuff. I'll, I should check this out. I'll send you a thing. Um, there's a peace of mind if people can find a way to access it. My, if I had to pick one thing for people to listen to, it's called An Enterprising Man. Uh, it's like an hour-long loop. And like the way this guy had to cut it up was not – like digital media and editing tools were not really available right. there's at no, this time. There's no garage band. Right. So over the course of a week, this guy had to cut physical tape – uh, and put it together. And so the the undertaking, I think, the craftsmanship of this is also fantastic and hypnotic. And it's just got touch, clicks all, it checks all the boxes of the stuff that I like to listen to uh, audio wise. Like it's why I like David Lynch uh, movies and like uh, The Lighthouse. You turned me on to The Lighthouse last year. <laughs> um, you And you nailed it. Like that drone industrial background thing that sort of pulls you the in. The sound is so good in that movie. Yeah, like that that describes a lot of this guy's work to a T. Interesting story. Side quick side note. I saw the lighthouse in a theater in Houston, Texas the afternoon before game 7 of the 2019 World Series. Oh, I'm sure that that yeah, that's interesting then that the uh Margaret wanted me to get out of my head for a little bit. And Well, and there's I saw that movie. I uh, I don't know how you could not have just identified with the characters in that movie at that moment then and, and it had to be a weird mirror held up to you at that and, at that and, exact and moment. still do yeah um but if you haven't seen the lighthouse i think it's on amazon prime check it out um we do have to edit out a lot of your fart sounds so <laughs> but on the um but yeah so joe frank joefrank.com check this out i know i'm going to thanks for that um speaking of, of of things on amazon prime 
Um, if you listen to last week's episode with Steve Albini on talking about how COVID has affected the music industry, uh, we did briefly talk about a band that we're both into called Sleaford Mods. And um, I did text a Sleaford Mod song or tweeted a, a, a Sleaford Mod song out. If you don't know who these guys are, it's um, I can't remember being this excited about something I haven't heard before in years. It's uh, it's two guys, uh, working class guys from England. Uh, one simply creates a, a kind of electro beats and the other guy screams over them. Um, mostly like class warfare and, and class struggle stuff. Um, it's kind of remarkable. They're amazing live. The one guy just kind of shows up with his laptop and when the song starts, he hits a couple keys to start the song and just kind of bobs along while the other guy screams. They are fucking amazing. Um, and they've done everything kind of independently they've kind of done almost all their stuff kind of outside the uh, traditional mechanics of the music industry um and there is a documentary about them uh on amazon prime called uh, a bunch of cunts uh the final word spelled k-u-n-s-t um but it's on amazon prime it's free and you can see plenty of live footage but also kind of shows how they operate and how they record and, and how they put songs together and it shows them also kind of um, becoming uh, big is a bad word, semi big in England, uh, to the point where they, they do, um, make a decision, uh, and, and end up on a real record label. Um, they released all their stuff was, mm. was kind of self-released they end up on, on rough trade, which is kind of like, you know, like a bigger indie label, if you will, kind of like a matador kind of thing. Um, but they end up, you know, doing that. And it's just kind of like their explosion into just these two guys, you know, playing real small, I mean, call them a venue to play you guys playing bars you know they, they but but with a cult following for sure and with good reason uh to kind of ending up bigger and it finishes them when playing i want to say it's coachella it might be something else it wasn't coachella it was one of the bigger it was glastonbury um in england one of the big music festivals there um but it's it's great they're great highly recommend a you know everyone today has spotify or apple music company just type up sleaford mods and start listening it's it's just absolutely fantastic and it's a really entertaining documentary you sent me the the video that you tweeted, which is like a live performance for a studio audience on some sort of BBC show. Yeah, Jules Holland. Yeah. Okay. And it is – you and I have talked about this on our own, but you and I like some of the same stuff, for, but for different reasons. Um, and so when you sent me this, like when I listen to music, I want to hear a Johnny Marr guitar riff. Like that's what I like is the subtle nuance – of the way he is playing this very difficult riff, you know, throughout a Smith song. That is my peak level of appreciation for music uh, is like that type of stuff. This is a group who, if you made me listen to it and not see what was going on, where I would just be like, no, I don't, I don't care. Not into this at all. But to watch the guy sit behind a kin and just kind of stand there. Just bob along nodding his head after he's, you know, hit the space bar on the laptop or whatever and have the other guy to describe the other dude's mannerisms would be very difficult. Frantic. Um, yes. Histrionic. Um, so, and that is, I'm glad that you sent me a video of them performing live because that I was captivated by the energy that they both sort of exude is bizarre and it has like it's high contrast from one another because it is just one silent. It's like Penn and Teller. Pretty much is. You're right. <laughs> one guy's just kind of standing there, hanging out, and 
at some point I'm like, that guy's just gonna keep doing this the whole song, isn't he? Yes. He's just gonna He hit play, the song's going. He hit the he's he hit spacebar on his laptop and he's outputting the beats. You're, he's done. And that discovery that that is the setup here was uh it it really tickled me that was when i was just like all right yeah i I do love this stuff and then i have seeked out again only i only care about watching them perform um so i have seen some of their other live stuff and it is interesting to see them in a festival atmosphere on a on a stage that is not enclosed in a studio and see how you gotta you can see how this guy had to up his energy level to captivate you know, a bunch of people standing in a pit in front of him outside. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not easy to do that as one guy with a microphone uh, in, in a place, in a venue like that. So, yeah, they're, they were fascinating to watch, and I was glad that you you forwarded that along on Slack. Check them out, Sleaford Mods. I think we're done here, Eric. We've talked a lot. This could be a long episode. We don't care. It's a podcast. There's no time limit. Do what you want. Yeah, there's a – so I had a, a class in college that was like a sports media class, and it was taught by – one of the older guard type dudes who was bemoaning, he's the type of guy who would bemoan statistics in baseball, except he was bemoaning some of the internet stuff uh, related to sports journalism. And of course he was justified in some of it. Um, <laughs> you know, like fans edge and all that stuff. Uh, or no, that's, that's where you buy shirts. Um, but yeah, he was upset about those types of things. And we did a, a project in there where we had to talk for 10 minutes about the NFL draft or something like that. We had some sort of like you and a partner team up and do a segment that would be playable on TV. And uh, it was only supposed to be like eight minutes. And my, the review I got my grade, I get it emailed to me and it says you went on for an ear splitting 21 minutes. (laughs) It was just like the worst feedback I've ever gotten on anything I did academically. And that's somehow, even though I remember how that made me feel, here we are. The lists are this long, and so is the episode of this podcast. <laughs> so I would put this thing together yet, so I have no idea how it's going to be. I'll make an estimate. We hope you've enjoyed this ear-splitting two and a half hours. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to email us, chinmusicatfangraphs.com, and we will see you next week.
gustó.